But it's the only time they all get together. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I mean, to knowing kill each other. I know. Uh, to make like little family, like Jones family reunion t-shirts. <laughs> oh, man. It ended in flames. It did it not go well. Flames, like every family reunion. <laughs> Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. Just a reminder, this is a rewatch podcast. And what that means is we've seen the entire series from beginning to end and back again, and we spoil the exact same way. So if you have not seen every single episode of this series, you're in the wrong place at this time. Please, please, please go back and finish, cry and all that stuff, then come squeal, and then we would love for you to listen. This is Beep. I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hello. And we have Megan back today. Hi, everybody. Yay. <laughs> you haven't been on since Fatherland, way back in season two. I know. That was like a whole different time in my life. <laughs> Things are different <laughs> now. <laughs> but you did write a huge and incredible piece about Deacon in Enemy, and you made us all cry, and I have not gotten over it, so I'm still mad at you for that. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> I watched Enemy yesterday, and I was just like... I just have to say again, what a fucking marvelous, like, episode of television. Like, oh my god. Mm-hmm. I know. And it's kind of a great one to think about. I mean, this it's episode sticky. cuts back to a lot of scenes in Enemy, mm-hmm. you know? Megan, really quickly, just remind everybody where they can find you, where you're recording from, all that good stuff. So I'm recording from uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And you can find me on Twitter at Megan, M-E-A-G-A-N underscore goes wine. Um, I am on lockdown because I'm about to start seeing clients in my program, but you know, if you add me, I'll probably add you back. So yeah, that's, that's about all I'm doing these days is, uh, school and children. (laughs) For counseling, right? Yeah. For, uh, clinical mental health counseling, which basically means I'll be a therapist, hopefully when this is all done, hopefully. God bless. (laughs) That's good, because I feel like after this episode, all of these characters could really use one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, like, wow, a lot of uh, individual therapy, some couple work, some uh, family systems, uh, sprinkle a bit of attachment theory over these people. There's a lot going on. Maybe some group dynamic counseling, workplace issues. I'm just saying that there's a reason there's a this is a drama. <laughs> People are fucked. <laughs> oh my god, I'm just trying to picture like Jones in a work in a work group work therapy. I know. Session. <laughs> Can you imagine like trying to be like Jones's therapist? <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god, I just so spit out my coffee. <laughs> like first I'm gonna need you to put out your cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that, you know, our therapeutic alliance is bent, is like if our therapeutic alliance is predicated on you smoking, fine. But you at least have to say something and not glower at me. <laughs> <laughs> I think she'd 
rather put out the cigarette. <laughs> That's it. She'd rather put out the cigarette for sure. <laughs> um. Oh my God, you guys, we are at the season three finale. Um, or as Jennifer says, it's the beginning of the end. Chills. Uh, so we are talking today about episode 310, Witness, written by Terry Metalis, directed by Grant Harvey, who also directed um, that awesome bottle episode Meltdown um, in season two, the horror one. <sighs> um, before we dive into stuff, this is a finale. Um, it's an epic one. Tell me just sort of your like yelling feelings <laughs> about rewatching this. So I rewatched it last night. I um I didn't get a chance to rewatch the whole season, so I did the first three and like the last three. And man, this this is a show that you step away from. I I mean, y'all haven't, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> and then like when you watch it again, it just I'm like, oh my god, this is so fucking good. Like. And the finales especially, like, y- y'all know I love Thief. Like, that's an, an, one of my favorite episodes of television of all time. But um, the finales for each of the four seasons in the series finale are just incredible finales. Probably my favorite, I think, probably the top finales I think I've ever seen. Because not only do they, like, conclude the story of the season, and always in a surprising way... They also expand the story and like reset the board and you're like, like, wait, what the fuck did you just do to my expectations? But none of it feels like um, contrived. It all just feels like natural and also just, I mean, the quality is just so high and they just keep getting better and better until, you know, obviously season four when we're all just crying and shit. But like, yeah, this is a great finale. Um I think it it's surprising, it's beautifully shot, it feels so epic, you know, like, it's just a great episode of television. Yeah, it's it's funny because it there's this really, and it's such a fine line, right, that that mm-hmm. feeling that you, when you're watching a season or series finale of either feeling like you watch all the pieces of a puzzle fall into place in a way that you can both be surprised and also be like, that makes sense. Exactly. Instead of what the fuck, right? Like surprise is not always good. (laughs) You know, like. Have y'all done that tangent about surprises and twists and how most of the time they suck? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like you can have surprises like, uh, like, I don't know. Like, I mean, you can have a surprise where you look back on it. And I mean, the moment of being surprised is really sad. It's thrilling, right? But when you have that 30 seconds later where you're like, wait, but that doesn't make sense. Then, right, then it feels like you're invest, you feel like a chump, right? Because Mm -hmm. you invested in trying to figure this out and it didn't have anything to do with what you're trying to figure out. And I don't always mind not being surprised, right? Like, like that first season of Westworld, Mm -hmm. it was like, okay, I figured that out, but that's okay. I would rather have figured it out than, than you guys surprise me just to surprise me and then it doesn't make sense. Um, Right. And then they got all pissy that people figured it out. And I'm like, sorry, Westworld. It wasn't that original. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) But it's that if you want. No, it's all right. It's all right. We're, we, we keep it real. Um, But, but, um, (laughs) but also the, they always answer a question and then raise a new one. 
You know, like... You mean 12 monkeys? Yeah. Yeah, their answers almost implicitly do that, which is just like, that's great writing. It is fabulous writing to be able to be that efficient. Yeah. Um, You know, you end this one knowing definitively who the witness is. But then sit there at the end being like, what is the deal with the riddle and Cole's mother? Uh Uh-huh. So satisfying. It's just so satisfying that you get an answer. There's no like... You know, there's no, like, two-facing about it or anything like that. Like, you get an answer to the question, but the answer is, one, unexpected, even though it makes sense, and two, it raises this whole new set of, like, what the fuck? Like, what does that mean for everything else in the story and for everything I've just seen? Right. Right? And then, like you said, they cap it off with that little vignette at the end that's like, ahaha, you thought we were done, but now, like, chills. (laughs) Right, and that question has been around since, and Megan, you, it's so great because you did Paradox with us in season mm-hmm. one. That question was planted in season one. Mm-hmm. Who, who's Cole's mother, right? And, and Matthew talking to Cole, adult Cole about his mother and, and, and even hinting about that there's something mysterious about it and tied up with the Army of the Twelve Monkeys to Jones and Cassie. But there's been so much going on that I frankly right. forgot about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Beep, did, what, did you have any sort of like, uh, like feelings <laughs> or big picture reactions rewatching this? Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting because I realized that I have never watched this episode in isolation. Mm-hmm. I have always watched it like, you know, even the way it aired was like eight, nine and 10 or whatever, however they did it that year. And I, I've never just sat down and been like, let's watch Witness. So it's it's very interesting, though, because it's like the totality of season three in one episode. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I always appreciate when a show does this, because, oh, my God, so few bother. I'm like, oh, like, you guys watch your own show, which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Because yes. it's almost like you knew what happened before this. Like, how neat. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the things that I, that I find interesting, though, is just like you guys were saying, um, I, I feel like Olivia is like the meta character in this sense because she's like finding this out the same way we are. She's like, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Like, I worshipped you. You have to be the witness. And he's like, nah, bro, like, it's you. And oh, she's like, I, I don't yeah. get it. Like, what do you mean? And yet the, the thing that I find most interesting is the way that it reframes the entire series up to this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like everything what- is flipped on its head, but not in a way, like you said, where you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, like, right. please don't do this. <laughs> please, uh, please, please don't do it. Right. Like it, it's, it's not the moment when I was watching Lost and the two brothers were like playing chess and I was like, what is going? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, yes. where they're like caveman and Alice and Janie showed up and I was like, oh, no, like, go back to being CJ Craig. Like, what is happening? Like that, oh, you know, that's a bad what the fuck. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good point, Beep. And, you know, it, it also weirdly puts you emotionally 
with Olivia in the in that moment, even as we're finding out that she's the quote unquote big bad, you know, like her moment of confusion and mm-hmm. wait, what and watching that play out over her face and that realization, we're going through that moment with her. We're also in her shoes, kind of having that realization. So it's kind yeah. of it's meta, but it also lets you connect with Olivia in a way that maybe you don't always you you don't always do that when you have you just found out that she is the the great series antagonist you know yeah. and and the way like the thing that stood out to me this time that I don't think I've ever noticed before is there's there's almost kind of this like hopeful hopelessness in a way mm-hmm. it, it, let me explain because like we have this fate versus choice thing like all the time right that's we're back and forth we're back and forth with that and on one hand, you're like, heck yeah, like, Ethan's not the witness. And on the other hand, it's like, but he never was. Mm-hmm. So is it choice or is it fate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because he didn't choose not to be. I mean, he did, but he, you know what I mean. Like, Yeah. So we didn't save him in that regard. You know what I mean? It's like, no, it was never him. I mean, I, th- I think, yeah. I mean, it definitely takes that nothing is written Um you know, and Cassie kind of fighting against prophecy, and it's like, well, it actually never was. But right. but he but he personally turns. He was going like I think you can separate whether or not he was going to be the witness, and still, it's a story of someone who was truly lost after you know because of his bereavement, because of losing someone he loved, and turns back to human connection through his parents and oh, and also with Jennifer. Yeah. Um, what, even- what scared me, though, is the way that it could speak toward what comes after it. And now we know what comes after it, so it's not bad. But you know what I mean? It could be like, no, we are kind of in this loop. Like, even though that was a good loop, like, can mm. we really change anything? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to pick up on that, because I did want to jump into some like big picture stuff before we go scene by scene. It is this interesting, you know, um, culmination of this nurture versus nature debate. And we're still going to have characters that are going through like Deacon in season four, right? Nothing is written. You can choose who you're going to, who you want to be. And that line, you know, who you are today doesn't mean that that's who you have to choose to be tomorrow. But yeah, it's really interesting because it's like you think that this episode, the title of it is Witness, and you think that it is about this battle for whether Ethan is going to be the witness or not. And then you're right, it turns out he never was. And so what does that suggest in terms of the loop and free will and fate or destiny or whatever you want to call it, which is always – troublesome in a time travel story, you know? Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I believe that just because someone, it's like a complex thing in and of itself, but just because someone made a choice that like the bigger concept of time like knew they would make doesn't mean it wasn't a choice. But it's just interesting to know that it wasn't a different choice. I mean, the thing that's interesting with Ethan's choice is how it mirrors in different ways both of his parents. So you have kind of this series long Cole trying to choose to be a better man. Um, And we were reminded of the kind of man that he used to be um, during the post-apocalypse and as a scav. And Ethan goes through a journey of choosing to be a 
a quote unquote like better man. Like he's going to be someone who's going to connect with his parents and and put aside that pain and acting out in it and and choosing to save people like his father. And he's also like I firmly believe his mother ultimately, despite the temptation, chooses to reject the red forest, even if he was never the witness. Right? He still certainly at one point in the story believed that that was a better end for for humanity. Um, so I think it's interesting how like Ethan's journey in this episode, it kind of mirrors both of his parents' journeys in different ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, I was thinking about that as you're talking about like, so on the, it's kind of almost one of those things where like his actions to be a better man, um, quote unquote, like um, mirror Coles in a way, kind of encapsulate Coles. But the thing that struck me when watching it last night, because I did also have these feelings of like, he really does combine their stories like um, but with uh, and that red forest thing to me links so much to like Cassie's grief, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's where we begin the episode with Ethan, right? Is he's like in this, like he's angry. Like, and that's one thing we've always talked about that we like with Cassie is that she's allowed to, her expression of grief is allowed to be anger, like losing her mother, um, you know, losing Cole. I, Aaron, you know, I was like, who, who was the fiance? <laughs> uh, Aaron, you know, like the way the world went, like all the things she gave up, like her career, you know, like we've always talked about how she was like allowed to be angry in her grief and to be, um, you know, and so I see that reflected with like Ethan in the beginning, right? But then Cassie, like basically, I mean, she chooses him, right? Like, and he sees the, that like, Yes, he has felt lonely and like rejected and like kind of alone in this purpose to be brought up as the witness, but like she chooses him, right? And I feel like that's the game changer in a lot of ways is like she, he is able to see in like one episode that she, like, even with all like the time fuckery, it's not been literally like 40 years or whatever that he's been alive. Um, that's so crazy now that I'm like, how long has she even known he's been like part of her life, like a few mm-hmm. years? but he's 40 years old. Um, But like, um, and so I think that like, I don't know, there's just so much to pick apart about like the, the themes of like, um, like motherhood, like quote unquote, like motherhood. Right. Like, and, uh, and grief and parenting and all that. Like we, we talk about that a lot, but I don't know. I'm trailing off a little bit, but suffice to say, seeing that like, we also go with like his actions with like, Cole, but I feel like his emotional journey is a lot like Cassie's, you know, Mm -hmm. like starting in this place of like grief and anger and rage and bitterness. And then by the end, like you're saying, like choosing, choosing hope in the face of hopelessness, basically, like choosing that, like, it matters what you it's like, what what does Angel say? Beep, you might know. Um, When he's like, in Buffy, when he's oh, like, yikes. you know, it, it matters what we choose, even if it feels like, even if we know we're going to lose, it matters. Mm-hmm. Um, I will look that up while you keep talking. Uh, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody keep talking. <laughs> we need to tap Meg. Meg, Meg says things. <laughs> <laughs> we need a butt. Yeah, we need a, we, uh, we need we a, need a Buffy button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, when you said he takes action, one of the, uh, one of the things I love is that the titles of these episodes are so simple mm-hmm. and yet yeah. mean so many different things. 
And you've got, you know, witness, obviously. Oh, good point. Yeah. He witnesses. He's passive for so long. Yes, right. Like the first part of it obviously has to do with, you know, we think at the beginning of the episode it's going to be about whether or not Ethan will become the witness. And when we get to the end of the episode, we realize it is when the true witness will be revealed. And that's Olivia. But witness, um, witness is a verb and it's a noun. Um, It can be like – passive. Um, And the idea of a witness is someone who's observing something, but not necessarily taking part. And that has been Ethan's role most of his life, right? Like Mm -hmm. jumping from time to time to time um, and and watching other people's lives and kind of sitting with that transitory nature of it, right? Like at the beginning of Thief, when he's sitting in the restaurant and the people are mm-hmm. laughing and it pauses and he's like, she'll die this way and she'll die that way and she'll die this way, right? Like he's removed. And not only that, but like all of the primaries witness these visions in their head. And I think it's interesting that all of them, at least that we witness in this story, one way or another are eventually called to intercede, like they have to take action, right? right? And Ethan chooses to go back to save his parents, and then he chooses to stay and sacrifice himself. And it mirrors a lot of the other primaries. Like it made me think back to like Tommy Crawford in season two. Like, no, this is what's supposed to happen. This is the day that I die. And so it's kind of, you know, and at the end of this episode, it's kind of a call to Jennifer, obviously is taking a lot of action, but it's also kind of a call to action to Jennifer, right? Like, this is your mission now. And so it's just interesting, like all of the different ways, like, you have the faithful at Titan waiting to quote unquote witness the return of their Messiah. You've got Jones and Cassie and Cole almost like an audience, right? They're witnessing Olivia come back and Ethan and they're passive. All of this stuff is happening and they're just watching it. And so it's just interesting all the different ways that you can kind of play with the title of the episode and characters moving from being passive to have to actually like take action. And then how that kind of ties back to what Beep was saying about free will versus fate and all of Mm -hmm. that. Um, Yes, and Megan was right about how that angel line ties in basically to the whole series, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) What is the quote? What's the quote? He he said, if there's no great glorious end to all this, if nothing we do matters, then all that matters is what we do. Because that's all there is, what we do now, today. Mm, it does. <laughs> so do you know? Yay, I just had Angel. A, yay, Angel. I just had a like a, a thing of like people listening to this at home while we're trying to look this quote up and being like, this is the quote. This is the quote. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Selena's banging. Y'all covered. Yeah. Selena's banging on her desk right now. I'd be like, I knew that quote 10 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was at the beginning of Angel because he was talking to Kate. Right. Uh, I'm still on season five of Buffy, guys. I'll probably watch Angel in like 2020. Uh, (laughs) All right. (laughs) I'm just going to try and finish Buffy. Um, So, the other thing that I, you know, I've watched this episode a bunch of times. The thing that struck me that was kind of new this time um, is I always felt like this was the part in the story that felt like The Empire Strikes Back. Like, our heroes suffer a huge loss. Um, We watch Aethan die. You know, Jones is 
mortally wounded. Well, not mortally, but she's pretty seriously wounded. Um, there's a huge identity reveal. Um, they're they're kind of lost the day, but got away. Um, and the bad guys are still in like hot pursuit. Like it feels very much like Empire Strikes Back. It but it even looks like Darth Vader, sort of. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You get an identity reveal, right? Like it's very Empire Strikes Back. It's that kind of trough in the bigger story. Yeah. But but our but our but our heroes are going to live to kind of fight another day, even if it doesn't, the odds don't look so good. Um, but I have one really quick complaint, not about the show. Um, and I know they're never going to hear this or care, but like, can Hulu please stop putting up screenshots in the beginning of an episode, like to advertise it that spoils stuff? Like, can they please just stop? Oh, do they? Have you yeah. ne- have you guys ever noticed that? Like the backsplash for season three of Twelve Monkeys is like Olivia looking like a, what a witness would look like, but she's yeah. not in the context of like you know she spends most of season three in that cage, right? Like she's in the context of like the uh, of Titan. Yeah, but it happens for every episode too. You know, they have a backsplash mm-hmm. like you're saying, and several of them. I'm just like, people don't look, don't look. Like, <laughs> it's terrible. Like the surprises anyway. in the show are so good that I'm normally I don't care about spoilers. Like they don't really impact how I view a show. But in this show, it's so it's like one of the only like shows or movies or books that I'm kind of like, no, 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 no. Like you want the surprise. Like you really. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm protective of other people's viewing experience on this one, even though, like you said, I'm like all spoilers all the time. I don't care. I want to know like what's coming on shows Mm -hmm. so I can almost like enjoy it more. But no, no, no. You don't need to know anything about this. Right. Just trust us. It's good. Go watch it. (laughs) <laughs> it's like kind of sacred. I feel like yeah. the twists on the show are sacred. Right. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about is how this, how this finale connects particularly to season, the season two finale and the series finale. And so let me just break it down like what I mean. So even just the house of cedar and pine, like this finale, Turn it flips a lot of the things that we learned or thought in season two and kind of flips it on its head. Um, and the series finale would do the same thing again. So, like with the House of Cedar and Pine in the season two finale, if you guys like go all like it's kind of crazy to like think back, we opened up that series two finale the day before December 25th, 1959, right? The day before this, they're at the House of Cedar and Pine this time, and it's idyllic. Um, right? It's it's Cassie's potentially Red Forest moment. It's finding out that they're going to have a son. It's like the holidays. It's like everything that you could maybe personally want in terms of happiness. And then Cole having to erase it. And then this finale, they're back there with their adult son. And Cole is refusing to give up his son. But then he dies and we watch it like you know, shot to hell, engulfed in flames, torn down, right? It's kind of like this really visceral, like visual, like the death of that dream, right? Like that physical place is gone forever. And then the season four finale, the series finale will end back at the House of Cedar and Pine. The reset, it's there again. And then Cassie and Cole will find each other then. And so even oh, sorry, sort of... Sorry, I have feels. Right? Like, <laughs> I just like attacked my feels. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like, 
even the way they play with this place and how it's this idyllic time and it's physically torn down in this finale and then restored when things are reset and then that's where they find each other again. Like, I just had a lot, right, I had a lot of feelings watching it get torn down. <laughs> I'm feelings right now. Right. Um, but they also, you know, they revert, this, the big WTF moment of the series two finale was the witness is your son, right? It's it's the mother mother champ moment. This finale turns it on its head, right? The closing scenes are nope, wasn't me, <laughs> right? Um, and you know, season two ended with Olivia finding Ramsey in the woods and then being like, no, she's not with the army of the twelve monkeys now, right? Like setting us up, they're going to turn that on its head. Um, season two, Cassie was left behind at Titan. Um, and you had the two of them on opposite sides of that threshold as Titan was splintering away. And this time, Cassie gets to set off an explosion and escape, right? Like, um, and then you kind of have this whole, Jones even says it explicitly, the one versus the many dilemma. And you have Cole in season two, like, the season one finale was Cole going back to save the one. The season two finale is Cole giving up his son to save the many. This one, he won't give up his one while Jones is yelling him about it. And the series finale is Jones refusing to give up Cole. Yeah. <laughs> so there's all these like interesting ways that they're, they're playing with all of these different sort of scenarios. And, you know, it's a loop, but they're constantly kind of flipping the script on the way that it plays out in these yeah. finales. I mean, I think, like, the one thing that was kind of coming to me was when you were talking about the, um, the like, this House of Cedar and Pine and, like, wh- what happens to it and um, the season two finale, the season three finale, and then the season four finale is kind of this idea, because I, I'm just going to be that bitch, she's like, I'm going to relate this to my field of study. <laughs> <laughs> um, Do it. Well, it just kind of is the phrase, like, you can never go home again kind of came to mind when you were talking about that because you know um this show does play with like what what is home who is home like where and when is home and like what do those memories mean you know like what's the significance that you give these memories you have of like places and people and like um and how they like shape and define you and how they can also be they can be one thing like this idyllic you know, Cedar and Pine was an idyllic place for a few months. And then it was literally the place where their son got shot and they had to burn it down and like Titan came and it was always kind of actually set up for them in a way like that whole like twisty time travel way that like, um, this nefarious plan was like always the subtext of their happiness, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it kind of goes to that to like, you can ask a lot of meta questions about like memory and trauma and um, how do we restore things and places and relationships that matter or don't, you know? And so I really like that the end in season four is like, they get to go back to a place that they called home, but there's so many choice, like there's a, a whole network, a community of choices that are made by all sorts of people and by themselves to get them to that ha- that quote unquote happy ending or that like reset, you know? Right. And, and that know. place and that place that's associated with an idyllic time, mm-hmm. the that may be the image, but the but Cole's monologue is very much about now. Right. 
who you're with now, the choices right. you make now. Um, mm-hmm. And in this episode, that's expressed through the flashback with Eliza, but like right. all we have is now. And so it is – the image is something that – and that place is something that means something in the past to both the audience and to Cassie and Cole. But what they're thankful for in that moment is like finding each other and being in that moment with each other now. And that's like the impression you're left with, like thematically as the audience. So like mm-hmm. that, that ne- you can never go home again idea. It's like, well, cause your home is like who, what you make of it now in this moment because we right. can't go back. Um, Right. Like, so. Yeah. Um, If you guys don't have, do you guys have any other sort of big picture stuff or should we jump in scene by scene? Uh, We can jump in scene by scene. I'm just like, oh, this show's so good. It's so, you can take take one, you can take one moment apart in so many different ways. Right. Like, uh, so. I know. Right. And the thing that, uh, you know, that's interesting is that when you watch the house get burned down, we'll get to the end, but home for them as a found family is the temporal facility. You know, that's Mm -hmm. what, that's the olive branch Deacon, that Deacon Mm -hmm. offers at the end, that kind of wordless moment of kind of like, come back home, y'all. It's come back home. Yeah. And home Mm -hmm. means something different for all of them. And so choosing to go back to that place that, that is home for all of them. It's just, it's just a really, there's so much significance to it. Mm -hmm. All right. It's London 2017. It's a graveyard. (laughs) Jennifer has become an urban legend (laughs) to the children of London. Tell me your Jennifer feels for this uh, deliciously borderline crazy scene. (laughs) I mean, it's just the whole, like, I don't know. You know, like, she just, because of how fast I think Emily Hampshire talks, like, what a pressed affect um, Jennifer has sometimes, you don't realize that she's, like, what she said is hilarious <laughs> until, like, a second later when she's all, like, brainiac mental patient slash CEO corporate terrorist slash pirate. And you're like, wait, what? That's so fucking... It's like, I don't know why it's so funny, but... It's just so funny. It is. And it's like so uh, – it is both like – they're not breaking the fourth wall, right? Like it's totally mm-hmm. in character, but it's also Jennifer describing all of the different permutation, like that her character has taken on, right? It makes you think mm-hmm. back to when we first met her in the velour tracksuit and when she was like, you know, standing on the table mm-hmm. <laughs> at the Markridge and all of that. Um, but I mean, it's also crazy – that she like when you sit back and think about Jennifer's solo journey um just in this episode to through when she will meet future asshole at the train station mm-hmm. or reunite with Cole with a cheeseburger um on the banks of the river in season 4 she's she's been on her own bought a at least the mausoleum <laughs> Right, I don't know how long she's been there. Well, they said they sent her back to her time. So at least a year. It's 2017. Um, I can't remember what. uh, I guess we'd have her in 2015. I think we do, right? Correct. So a couple years at least. But then time passed. I mean, when she was plucked in season two and brought. Yeah, they didn't take her till 2016. Yeah, I guess you'd have to go back and thief and say if they when they were telling um, Lasky if they actually said the mm-hmm. like actual like time, but yeah, because they could have sent her back like right before that because Deacon was like you know anywhere, anywhen. 
Right. And she said, I want to go home, but she didn't say like, to the moment that you plucked me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Right. It, it could be kind of whatever. Like but a she, fox. <laughs> like a fox. <laughs> but she's been on her own. Like, think about the kind of faith that like that, that takes. Like, Jennifer. I'm, I'm going to go buy. I don't know if she bought the whole graveyard, but she at least bought the mausoleum. And she's been camped out and waiting there for a unidentified dying man to show up for long enough that these kids are telling stories in the neighborhood about the crazy lady who lives in the mausoleum, right? I and like, it. It rarely puts you up at the rich. The rich. It's a real bitch. <laughs> bitch that Can't even get it out. I know because it's so good. Um, and so then, good. and then she's going to have a whole year with Ethan before she ever sees any of Team Splinter again. So you know, uh, so much fic potential. <laughs> it's a great prompt. Um, so, yeah. And then you have the lights flicker and you get the, you know, 12 Monkeys music and her face is like delighted crazy <laughs> with the here's Johnny. Like, oh, it's so good. Um, Beep, do you have any Jennifer feels about this moment? Of course I do. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> I, I love that she's like, this is kind of her transition to old Jennifer. Like, she's starting yeah. to look kind of ratchet. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's really owning the, you know, I live in this place. <laughs> you right. definitely know she bought the whole cemetery. If not, even more buildings and, like, stuff around that place. I want to use all of the terminology, uh, uh, terminology she did on my resume. <laughs> like, brainiac mental patient. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> oh my god, the shoe fits. Psycho you know? gypsy pirate. That sounds like yes. a good Halloween costume. Yeah, it she has does. a bag. She has a bag of candy. Like <laughs> she just <laughs> like I, I might as well like make it Halloween all the time. Like trick or treat because I live in a graveyard. Like so, but she's so pure. You know what I mean? She's like I don't know. And like, how are you just sitting there waiting for? Like, you don't even know what's going to happen. It, it's just beautiful. Like, she cares that much, like, not just about her primary. Like, she doesn't know who this man is. Right. But she's, like, giving up her life and waiting to save someone, like, when she doesn't even understand it. And, like, there's that empathy, girl. There it is. Right. I mean, and it's another interesting tie back to the title of the episode. And I hadn't really thought about it this way. But she's just sitting there waiting to like witness this moment and and then when it happens that's her call to action you know but she's like sitting waiting for this event there's a lot of people in this episode that are sitting and waiting for something to happen whether it's jennifer at the mausoleum or the faithful at titan right like and none of it is going to go according to how anybody thinks <laughs> but but you know she's sitting there and she's like i don't know if i'm too early or too late like that is an insane existence Right? Like, you know, probably only Jennifer could sit there and do that. Um, I don't know if any of other characters would have the patience and the kind of faith that borders on not logical, but is the right thing to do, you know? Like, but we it's, know. It's like Olivia says, you know, um, says to Jones, and I think it's in Thief, where she says, you know, the whole, like, wouldn't, wouldn't you like the view from the top? Like, with yeah. Jennifer, we're working with a character who does have um, maybe not the complete view, but she has more of an insight into 
like the recursive spherical nature of time than any other character that we know besides Ethan, especially because, you know, Olivia hasn't like looped herself into the time stream yet. So, um, but again, that, that little drop, that little hints along the way that Olivia actually wants that, you know, cause in, you know, in the beginning of season three, she's all like, you know, why, why be whatever when you can be God, you know? Mm-hmm. And then later in the season, wouldn't you like to have the view from the top, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, that, that line is a great preview in Thief. Mm-hmm. That line's a great preview for her, like, early season four arc. Right. When she's kind of, like, envious of the, of the power that primaries have. Um, right. Yeah. So let's switch. Um, the way I kind of broke this out is um, – before we get into sort of like all of the events culminating, I wanted to talk really briefly about sort of those early Olivia and Joan scenes because then everything mm-hmm. starts kind of editing uh, back back and forth and back and forth when Olivia actually breaks out later of the facility. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, when you rewatch this and you have Olivia telling Jones about the House of Cedar and Pine and about how it's the origin of the witness and you're like, kind of. <laughs> Like not quite how you're uh, how how you think um, how even Olivia thinks in this moment, right? Um, and you have Deacon. Like Deacon is always the like he's he believes in the mission, but his skeptic of like when are you going to reach your threshold for bullshit? It's <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's such a great voice, right? Because you have someone being like, "Yeah, I need to drink this tea," and like it's sounds fucking crazy, right? Like, I love that he's that voice. Um, Now, when Olivia drinks the tea, and they have this repeated image throughout the series, Um, they had it back in season two when she drank the tea at Monkey Mansion. They'll show it again when young Olivia is kind of having her coming of age ceremony and gets branded, you know, the drops falling on her face. Um, But one thing I noticed this time around is the way the director framed um it's really masterful and when you think about the whole question that this episode is asking and answering you've got the mirror and we have we will earlier in the episode have seen Ethan looking in the mirror and asking when they are but when Olivia drinks the tea you have the shot framing the two of them staring at one another in profile. Mm-hmm. And in the T images, it's Olivia facing Ethan, and you've got the grandfather clock in the background. And it's like this. These are our two options for the witness, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of a mirror and something that you look into and see your reflection and see who you are. Like this episode is Ethan looking into a mirror – and dis- his his journey of self discovery is that it was he was never the witness. Olivia's journey of self discovery in this by the end of this episode is she is the witness, and then she turns around and faces the witness in that kind of icon- iconic form that we've always seen with the mask, and sh- and that figure starts to take the mask off, and she kind of gasps in pain, and I assume it's because it's she's close to herself, right? Like it's mm-hmm. that paradox thing. Um, and then that's sort of where it ends. And when you go back, I, I'll be honest, I was totally shocked at the end of this episode that Olivia was the witness. But when you go back, there's so many clues in that tea montage about what the real question is in terms of who the witness is. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it's like a really classic, it's almost a classic magician's trick, you know, whenever, 
Is it, what season is it when Jennifer is like, old Jennifer is slapping Cole across the face because he's not watching the hands, he's watching the ball? Yeah. That's all that season three is, and especially this episode, is you're too busy watching the hands, (laughs) or not watching the the ball, that you don't watch the hands, or the cups, or whatever, you know, like whatever the metaphor is to work. (laughs) We're not paying attention to what we're supposed to be. (laughs) Exactly. We're completely not, and we... And they've planted the idea that the witness is Ethan. And, you know, we've all started to kind of doubt, like, maybe Olivia, like, maybe she, maybe she's still not good, but maybe she's on the team's side. Like, mm-hmm. that's very storytelling convention to have the anti-hero with the, like, questionable motives, you know, like, and they've played it out long enough that you're kind of like, oh, okay, I guess, maybe, like. So they just do a really great job of completely pulling the rug out from under you and being like, ah, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. And they're going to repeat that, um, the two of them staring at each other in profile at the end of the episode when we actually get an answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just uh, sort of like the directing choice to frame it that way. When you go back and you're just like, man, it's like right there, like in, in image form. <laughs> what this episode is about. Um, but yeah, I mean, Beep, I think Beep always knew that uh, Olivia, I was told, was Olivia was bad, but I was totally thought that they were, they were bringing her back around as, as sort of the wary ally. Um, and she nope, and Joe. And I love, I love in this episode, you know, I'm going to say it, that everything hinges and the way that like Deacon figures it out is because they never listen to Jennifer. And it was everything that she said, like, you have a chameleon. She is never not exactly where she wants to be. Which is so good, because at the very first episode, exactly right, Beep, Jennifer tells the audience and everyone, Mm -hmm. she's a chameleon, exactly what you're saying. Like, Jennifer says it, but because we, it's so interesting to play with the audience expectations that, like, the audience and the people like Deacon and uh, Jones and Hannah trust Jennifer less than they trust Olivia. And there's no reason to trust Olivia. So that really asks you to ask yourself why. Why would you not trust Jennifer, who has always worked for the good of the group? Yeah, well, there's um, maybe a lot to be said there, though, about the stigma of appearing batshit. Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Now, now, yes. Now, you know, there was a time when Jennifer was ready to drop the virus on the world, right? Everyone has had their sort of dark moments, but yeah, like that's a good point too. Yeah, like, but everyone, everyone has definitely. <laughs> but Olivia uh, has not had a light moment, so I'm exactly. not sure. Like, yeah, that's true. I don't know. Too. Yeah, no, I never bought that. Like, I didn't know she was the witness. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not like duh, but I never had any doubt that Olivia was like up to something. Yeah. Right. Well, she didn't because know either. Jennifer. She, yeah, she didn't know either. <laughs> In fairness, Olivia didn't know she was the witness either. Um, but I do, you know, and part of the way that they play it or play us is the same way that like when when Jones is going to sp- when they figure out where the House of Cedar and Pine is, when it is, and Jones is thanking Olivia, there is real affection and warmth between the two of them. You know, like Jones gets played and that's just such a character moment. So for Jones, I would expect it would be humiliating, Mm -hmm. right? 
And then that's what Olivia says. Olivia's like, you're a base, you're a worthy opponent, but I beat you, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And basically you've been beat this whole time. So like, I get it. I get that you didn't win. It's okay, sweetie. Like (laughs) literally no chance. (laughs) Yeah, but there's real, you know, like that's why Olivia, I mean, and part of it is just Alison Down is just such a wonderful actress that she can be so intimidating and so like, man, how would you ever beat her? And yet that scene with Jones, there's real affection. Like you feel the warmth between the two of them. And and they were doing it in the last episode too. Um, even when she's about to stab her at the end of this episode, she's like caressing her face. It's very emotionally confusing. <laughs> so this is yeah. all the Jones and uh, Olivia fit comes from. You're welcome, Joe. <laughs> Exactly. The Joe Livia fic. Maybe they had a a private goodbye before Jones splintered away. (laughs) Go right. We should have like a fic prompt contest when we get to the end of season four. (laughs) Yes, submit your fic and we'll read excerpts on the pod. Uh, Amazing. Yes. I really, really want to do pod fic. Come on. Yes. We'll do it. I'll I'll read it. I, I, can, I, will, I, think- I will literally read the raunchiest shit. So <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> hey, Terry gave us a fic prompt involving uh, Jennifer Deacon and a dog. I don't know if I could get through uh, that one. <laughs> I don't know if I could do that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm hard out for a bestiality. <laughs> oh, that might be the cold open. <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right, all right. So if you guys so have do you guys have anything else sort of about um what's going on at, at the facility before we move to Casserole and Ethan? I don't. I just, you know, we'll we'll sum that up with it's just so good. So good. Um all right. So let's go back to the beginning of the episode. I kind of want to trace all of I'm gonna follow the thread of all the Cassie Cole and Ethan interactions. Um to me, like one of the first things that kind of when you sit back and and put yourself like one of the things with the show is when you put yourselves in different character shoes in terms of how much time has passed. So the, you take the three characters in the church. For Cassie and Cole, one day for them begins at this church with Atham. They go to Titan. And then the end of their day is in 401 when they're being chased by Olivia and the facility splinters away. Mm-hmm. Right? So 310 and 401 for casserole is like basically the same, who knows, 12, 24 hours, right? For Ethan, <laughs> the day begins here. He's going to go to the House of Cedar and Pine, get shot. Then he's going to spend a year in the future with Jennifer from 2017 to 2018. And then after that year, it's been a year for him when he goes back to Titan and he dies. Like, that's the, there's a, like, Ethan's got a whole year, whereas for Casserole, this is going to be a day, which just kind of like, that hadn't like truly hit me, right? Until like I rewatched this. Um, and, and then now we know like what happens in 401, right? That that's all, it like picks up right where this episode ends. Um, but there's kind of this like great, um, dark humor that Ethan is older than them. And obviously, there's a lot of really legitimate reasons to unpack for why he is so angry. But he's also kind of like a sullen kid. Oh, my God. It's you like know, it's- a toddler yes! who is running with scissors through the house. That's what it is. 
that's exactly the tone that they strike here, and I love it. I know. There's kind of this, like, dark humor to it. Obviously, the stakes are super fucked up, but when Cassie and Cole are chasing Ethan, too. He's just like, I hate hate you guys. I'm like, dude, that's me trying to get my kids to leave the park, right? There's something super, like, universal about it. Um, (laughs) But, all right, so let's just take sort of the, um, that first scene in the church between the three of them. And obviously we have been waiting for this moment for a long time. Do you guys have sort of any initial thoughts? One, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like Jesus, the scope of the cinematography in this episode and in Thief too, it kind of feels like they're a continuation slash in conversation with each other, you know, as far as like the way the cinematography looks. But like when they're in that church, it's just so epic. And then I'm all like, I didn't get to freak out about how perfect Lee cast James Callis was. So I'm going to do that now. Go. So when in masks, it's in masks that it's revealed that it's him, right? Does he take? Yep. Yeah. The at the very thing? end. At the mm-hmm. very end. But not to I, them. Right. Audience it's only. The, it's, it's the audience only. I, dear listener, screamed. I <laughs> screamed. I could not believe it was because at the moment you're thinking it's the witness, right? Like that's where I'm like in the story. I'm like, oh my God, it's Ethan. It's the witness. He's speaking. That sounds kind of familiar. Take off the mask. And it's Gaius Baltar is the witness. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> I just screamed and I laughed because it was just like perfect casting. But then, of course, he has more range than that. Like, that's that's kind of the part of you where that kind of really um, great surprise casting is always in conversation with what the audience knows you from. Right. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. that's why you do that. Um, it's because it further threads that, like, that needle that, like, yeah, he's the witness, of course. Why would we cast anyone, you know, like, why would we cast this person who's known for this role if they weren't the witness? Like, mm-hmm. duh. Like, of course. Like, watch, right. watch the hand, like, watch the ball, watch the ball. Yep, yep. And, um, I mean, but also, obviously, he has so much more range. And he has that super iconic voice and, like, way of delivery and... I mean, and then he gets to really go ham with it, which is amazing. Like, this is a kind of that, in the in the church, he just chews that fucking scenery. <laughs> like, he is just, like, relishing it and having fun with it. And, and you can tell, like, I believe that you can really tell when actors are having fun with what they're doing. Even if it's, like, you know... Um, I don't want to say dark, but even if it's dramatic material. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like it comes off the screen that these like three people are just like, you know, the chemistry works. It clicks. James Callis is chewing some fucking scenery in this yeah. huge, gorgeous church. With there's like pieces in costumes. Like, yeah. like There's like pieces great. of the pew on the floor. Right. Like, I mean, and he's also so, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, like, we were joking around about this, like, you know, house, but yeah, he is scary in this scene. Oh my like, god, the He's anger, so angry, and you know, and he calls them out on so many things, right? Like, like, oh, and he has the body of like. This woman he's literally tried to save over uh, 600 times in front of her. And he's laying the jasmine and lavender on her. Like, that rage. Like, mm-hmm. I remember what So I watched it last night. And I was just like, 
you can feel like for all I'm talking about scenery chewing, I don't mean it's inauthentic. I know he just does an amazing job because you feel that like when someone when something happens that you're grieving a relationship, whether that's through like death or breakup or betrayal or whatever. I, you know, like, you know, that jaw clench, you know, that like flicker of like, I am so angry at the universe. It's like, more than I'm just angry at you, Cassie and Cole, like, I am so pissed that the universe saw to put me in this position right now. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. It's just like there and it's so good. (laughs) Yeah. You know, his parent, like, so his parents who have not for anybody's fault, but have never been there for him, right? Correct, you're right. They show up while he is standing over the body of the woman that he loved and tried to save 607 times. And they're telling him, like, you don't have to make this choice. Like, it, it would be like if you were going to put it in sort of like everyday terms, like an everyday scenario for us, it would be like losing someone you love and then somebody telling you like at a funeral, everything happens for a reason. Do you know, like that kind of like, like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, that kind of like you get the anger and and it, um, it, it also reaches back to so much of the limited but significant history between the two of them. Like when Cole's like, we're not here to hurt you. And Nathan's like, yeah, this time. Because remember when I was a kid and you were my father and you had a gun to my head, right? And he had that image in his head, right? And then, you know, like Cassie's like, you don't have to do this. And he's like, well, I got the idea from you, mother. Remember when I was sitting with you and you were the one who said time was a thief? Or Cole's like, well, you had a choice. And he's like, yeah, like you did when you were murdering people, when you were a scav. Like, Mm -hmm. he's got some points (laughs) um, of why you would be resentful for reasons very specific to them that they're not telling you to make a different choice. Right. I mean, it's one, again, it goes back to that whole, like, he goes from being like a toddler being chased to like a teenager. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, look, teenager, you have points, but also... (laughs) Points were made, but I'm still your parent. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still your parent. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And it's that whole, like, petulant way that, like, kids throw shit back at their parents' faces. Mm -hmm. You know, like, well, you, like... You know, why are you grounding me for pot when I see your vape pen? And you're like, shut up, kid. (laughs) It's not about that. Right, right. Um, Then you have this. I love the time chase where it's the same street through three different eras. And like, you know, they talked a lot on the last pod, Shantrana and Terry Metalis, about kind of like their guerrilla filmmaking, right? So like they're using the same street, and they're just changing out some of the like the vehicles and the costumes. And yet it's so elegantly done and it's so fun visually to be on the same street through the 1700s with red coats and then the Blitz. And I love how Cole's like, what's this? Right? Like he doesn't know his history necessarily. Cassie has to be like, oh, it's the Blitz. <laughs> and then you've got like That's a great through line with Cole though. He never like and it, it's so it's I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's no, just no, yeah. that in masks when she's talking about like Edgar Allan Poe and he's yeah. like look I grew up in the post-apocalypse I didn't read like tell me what you're talking about <laughs> absolutely right and then you've got kind of like a, a present day you know London black cab playing rap right and then you're like okay now we're in our time right and you've just got this like epic chase 
through three different decades having so much fun with the splinter suits and yet they probably i'm assuming they they filmed it like in the same place over and over again right Mm -hmm. like it's so it's so fun and it's so simple and you and you kind of um like communicate this kind of epic frenzied chase through time and yet it's it's there's also like a simplicity to it right because you're in the same place over and over again right and that also speaks to like the production in general like the you know um set deck the people who storyboard like all that kind of stuff that goes that's like okay we have this really really tight budget really really tight time frame how can we creatively convey this with the least amount of money the least amount of props the least amount of time because we only have probably like what 24 hours if that to shoot this right and so i think that like i want to point out again how much 12 Monkeys does with so much limited from what you know they've said like limited time and limited money to shoot and yet the show looks so good and conveys so much and then I think about other shows or movie movies with like limited unlimited funds who can't who who don't have to think that creatively and I think Mm -hmm. that that does speak to something about like yeah I'm not gonna like romanticize pressure and stress because but I don't, you know, yeah. that's, that's beyond the scope of this podcast. But I do want to say that I do think it brought out some like what you're saying, this like this simplicity that allows you to focus on like the emotion. Mm-hmm. And and it's there's something too nice that's that it is contiguous, that it is like kind of the same. Right. Like you're not so blown out with like the wow factor of like, oh, we're here and now we're here. And it's just like. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you could have played it a lot of different ways, right? You could have gone from like, uh, you know, like, and you can think of a lot of other time travel stories where they would have done that, right? Like, right. But- like LA to the Old West to like, uh, you know, South Africa, like all over the place. And then- Right. And that's fun. And it's right. going to be fun when they go to those. I love when they go to different. But But for this scenario, it's like you're chasing someone down the same street. It just happens to be throughout in three different decades because right. it's a time travel show and that is fun, right? And like there's there's some – both with Ethan traveling um, throughout Thief and then also in this episode, it's, there's a playfulness to it um, that, you know, Sean Tretta was saying in the last pod that time travel has been kind of a burden um, throughout this series. And so it's kind of letting the audience have fun with it too, right? You got red coats and Ethan being like, God save the king and right, like and going back and forth and like – you know, it's also crazy. You've got a guy in a fucking splinter suit in front of redcoats wearing powdered wigs. Like, it's crazy, right? Like, um, but also what I think is interesting is even as Ethan is like so angry and then, you know, he told him in the church, I feel nothing for you. Mm-hmm. There's there's little cracks because when he gives that sort of like um, presses the self-destruct button on Cassie's suit and Cole and Cassie then trick him when he sees just Cole, his face is like, you let her die, right? Like he's kind of crestfallen and you're like, ah, you're full of shit. (laughs) You do, they're still your parents, right? Right. All right, that takes us to the house of cedar and pine. Um, Who would have thought when we were watching 213 that by the next season finale, Cassie and Cole would be with their adult son on December 26, 1959. Tell me your feelings <laughs> about this scene. Just a day later. No worries. Mm-hmm. Me- Megan might be floored right now. 
I have it playing kind of concurrently because my memory is a sieve at the moment. But like, I just the part that just came up is the part where Cassie gives um, uh. the clock, the watch to Athan, and it's just I don't know if this is intentional or whatever, but. There is a lot of similarity into how that shot and cut with, like, the memories of him and Eliza and the Red Forest and stuff with how the episode where um, Cassie, the Cassie mom episode, you know, that, like, kills me every time um, Mm -hmm. is shot, too, with the way she remembers, you know, and how it changes. So, yeah, it just, you know, there's, I just have a lot of feels about the family, Cole, even as we only know it in 310 and not in by the season four finale, but it's just like... Oh, man. I know. know. I mean, you know, there's a lot of... And we, we talked a little bit last time, the parallels between Cassie and Cole and Ethan and Eliza. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the you know, the way Ethan and Cassie give voice to that frustration at mortality, right? And... Mm-hmm. Eliza and Cole end up giving voice to like, then you have to make the most of now, right? right. Um, but also like, even a timepiece being that kind of emotional, like, like, like anchor. anchor talisman, right? That's like the symbol of this couple, but is that one gives to the other, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and back and forth, and then the mother gives it to the son. I mean, uh. I, oh, like, I know. So let's not, I know this, this, these scenes are a black hole and now that you bring the hannah and jones into it all it is uh, like we're gonna go off an emotional cliff but just to start out one Mm -hmm. of my favorite shots in this show is cole cassie and ethan in their splinter suits standing Mm -hmm. in the snow outside the house of cedar and pine looking at it so good frame it it. i know Be, I don't know. It might be kind of weird to have hanging in your house, but like, <laughs> I mean, it's just so like, uh, it's one of those moments that like, if you sh- again, right? Like, if you showed anyone and you were like, uh, they would be like, what? And then you watch it, and it's just so, so good. Right? That play, you know, it's like the the lions are bringing the cub home, but it's uh-huh. just like, man, right? They're coming back with their son to claim that place with him. Um, so you have the Cole sit down, you little shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is the if you guys, if anyone listening just goes on Tumblr and looks up like the hashtag little shit and hashtag 12 monkeys, somebody put yeah. together an unbelievable gift set of I think it's Jones calling the dog a little shit, Jones calling Hannah a little shit um, in in early season three, and then, I mean, in the season three premiere, and then Hannah saying it to Cole on the bridge in the season three premiere, and then, of course, Cole saying it to Ethan, and I think it's, like, hashtag Jones parenting or, like, whatever it is. Uh, It's just such a great clue (laughs) that it's, like, so fun. Like, oh, man. Um... And then um, tell me your thoughts about this. You know, we've had this sort of nature-nurture debate. Mm -hmm. And you've got Cassie telling Ethan she's face-to-face with her adult son. And she's talking about, you know, her lines, I thought you were inevitable. Every kick was a knife. And then I saw you crying and small. Mm -hmm. And you can see kind of some emotion, like, emotion play over James Callis's face, right? Like, that would be a oh yeah, horrible thing. It, it is well, brutally honest. Her. 
Yes. He's like, and I was good, you know, like that whole thing that you expect from that, like, sentimental, like, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, a baby is born and they're good. And he's like, you know, kind of throwing that back. Because, of course, what she's saying, like, hurts. Like, you wouldn't say that to a little kid, but like, you know, when your son might be the witness. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Make a point. (laughs) Yeah. And it was a horrible time for her. Like she was a prisoner Mm -hmm. in a cult, right? Like Like she tried to commit suicide. Well, I mean, she tried to like die by suicide when she was pregnant. Right. Yeah. And she's brutally, she's not sugarcoating it. But her response to that is you were nothing. Not yet. I mean, that's their thesis statement, right? Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? There's a lot to unpack there. And it's kind of this, they've been playing with nature and nurture, but like, you know, it was, there may be things that were intrinsically a part of him because of DNA and all of that and things to come kind of like, but you were like a fresh, you know, like blank page. Right. Um, Yeah. Like the, the power of that is that um, in that context, people were already saying the witness is safe, right? Like they were already taking this, this embryo fetus, like, you know, gestating baby and saying this is the witness, right? And I think Cassie, Cassie kind of believes that, which is why she tries to, um, you know, like end her life, because she thinks that doing that will also in the witness, right? Like she buys into that. That's where that action comes from. But when she gives birth and says, you were nothing, that's a realization that like, you know, it, it speaks to that. I does speak to that idea of destiny. Like she's like, oh, like if I, if I took this baby and we got to go home to the house of cedar and pine where there's none of this fuckery happening, you would just be a regular child, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's also just something also very relatable about it, mm-hmm. you know, like. And I'm going to love you. Yeah. Right? That's where she, that's where she, lo- she like, is like, oh, I love my child. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, Amanda Schull's performance is like, there's fierceness to it when she's like, you are nothing. But there's also an emotion of like, you were small and mm-hmm. you were crying, you know, like you were an infant, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, and there's so much wrapped up in kind of that third leg of agency and choice and free will that is linked to nature versus nurture. Because what she then goes on to say is like, whoever you are today is not who you have to be tomorrow. Um, and that these moments kind of play out. It's not just with Ethan, right? Because Ethan is going to offer Cole the opportunity. He's going to give him a redo with the gun. Mm-hmm. And I'm now the ma- – you couldn't kill the boy, but I'm now the man. And I'm telling you that I'm going to go do this awful thing. Mm-hmm. And Cole still chooses not to kill his son. Mm-hmm. And, and not to kill his son, the man, which is different um, than the choice he made when he was like an eight or nine-year-old boy. And so this kind of who you have to be, like who you can be tomorrow, it's playing out in this scene with Cole, I think, as much as it is with Ethan. Because, I mean, Cole has certainly been more conflicted about his son than Cassie has this season. Mm -hmm. It's just such a good scene. Like, that in the house with them, it's so intimate, right? Like, it's a fam. Like, it's their little trio, like, finally having – they get one scene to hash all of this out. And they write it just very well. Right. And it's not – it is (sighs) – it could have – on another show – 
this could have played out in a way very differently. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, um, more bombastic and whatever. Yeah, or more trite, right? Like a parent's love for their son, right? This is really complicated. Um, everybody has very conflicted feelings on all sides. Everybody clearly underneath, right? Like, Ethan is putting up a good front, but as soon as they're under threat from Titan coming, he is worried about his parents. He wants them to take the suits and get out of there, you know? Like, um, Cole is, you know, obviously conflicted about his son and calling him a little shit and not having his attitude, right? But, like, he, when push comes to shove, he's going to stand by his son, and Cassie is brutally honest about how conflicted she was during her pregnancy, and she's still has this like beautiful moment where she is offering him another like showing him Eliza's watch and being like as much as I can I I understand what you went through you know like so it's all very human and none of it is simple you know I it, it, um they it's don't not treat the audience like the audience is stupid yes exactly and they also display like I know that we've talked about the other show about how um Either you felt like you were being like you felt like the like the writers thought that you were stupid, or that they themselves didn't have the complexity to write complexity. Whereas in here, this scene is all complexity and nuance, right? Like it is a bunch of people who have have hurt each other, have hurt themselves, you know, like, but love each other, but that love, like, there's being love, like, feeling love, and there's doing love, right? And, like, it's, like, all of this mix together, and they have, and they, I think there's also the pressure that they know they probably only get this one chance to, like, either save Ethan from being the witness, or, and to, like, have a family moment. They have one, this is, this is their family moment, right? Like, this is their Mm -hmm. family portrait. So, yeah, it's just, it's just really well done and very tragic. Like you want, there's a sense of watching this, especially as the episode concludes that you're just like, and throughout season four, where it's just like, you wanted, like, there's a part of me that just wants more for them as like a family, but the show is wisely not going to give you that. Like, this is the story. This is what they have. And that's what makes their choices all the more poignant. Yeah. Then, um, then uh, grandma and great grandma arrive outside. <laughs> to make it all even more poignant upon. Oh, <laughs> my God. So, like, when you were first watching Especially this. with their ages. It's, like, so mismatched and confusing. It's, oh, my God. Right. It's like, the only time they all get together. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I mean, to knowing kill each other. <laughs> I know. Oh. To make, like, little family, like, Jones family reunion t shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. It ended in flames. It did not go well. Like every family reunion. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, so funny. We, I love that you came back for this episode, Megan, because do you remember when we were talking in Paradox Mm -hmm. and you kind of identified this thread of- Did I talk smartly? You totally did. You were so smart. Um, how you, if you think back to paradox, Cassie and Jones in the car, and Jones tells Cassie that she's pregnant. 
and expresses oh, her ambivalence yeah. about it, right? And oh at the my end, God, yeah, Jeez, and at, this show, this show, and at the uh, end of that day, when Hannah spent that day, I mean, I'm sorry, when Joan spent that day with Cassie and Cole, she decides to have that she's going to keep the baby and she's going to go through with the pregnancy and have Hannah. Hey, you know, it's and then mother, whatever, uh, no who's big. Cole's mother? No big deal. And then you have the through line to lullaby. Um, and there's a Jennifer piece to all of this that we'll get to when she later saves Ethan. Um, that Cassie is the one who saved Hannah and gave, like, actually was the doctor who saves Hannah and, and restore. I mean, obviously, Cole and Jennifer had a part to play too, but she's the doctor who saved her. Mm-hmm. Who figured out the puzzle, um, which the medical I, which puzzle. I, which on tangentially ties into that whole, like, mother piece, right? Right. Of, like, Cassie saves Hannah for Jones, and then Jones gives Cassie that moment back with her mother. Yes. Oh, right. Yeah. And that, yeah, you've got that piece, too. Like, mother. Oh, yeah. feels. Like, it's just like a feels two by four. Just like. I know. And now you've got Jones outside this house demanding that they give up their son. And we're going to get to the mother to mother moment. But there's a really great conversation. And they're shouting at each other. Right? It's Jones and Cole. <laughs> like <Again>, family reunions. <laughs> Holidays. We're in the holiday season. Everyone prepare. <laughs> prepare by watching this episode. Oh man, can you remember? Can you think of a Jones family Thanksgiving? No, Jesus. Fuck no. <laughs> they better drink a lot. They constantly be going back in time to try to like fix their fucked up interactions with each other. All right, thirty seconds back. <laughs> oh man, I hope Deacon brings a lot of booze to that one. Oh, um. All right. So you have Jones yelling. Is this all that's left for us? Right. Again, coming back to this. Obviously, it's the mission, but Jones is also so hurt by the betrayal. And Cole saying, when I first met you, I had nothing. Mm-hmm. You gave me something to believe in. And Jones says, yes, that the life of one is not worth $7 billion. And Cole, again, family reunion, calls her out. Mm-hmm. It was to you, mm-hmm. right? That's why you went on this whole crazy time travel-like mission. Um, and I, it's fascinating to now think that in the series finale, it's going to be the person they're arguing over who's going to plant that seed in Jones's head about save the one, mm-hmm. right? Because Jones is the one arguing and she's the one that's going to alter the code consequences be damned to save Cole like at the mm-hmm. end of the show. Um, but the other great sort of Jones family moment that's subtle is – when Ethan is like, look, you got to let me go. These people are your family. You're like, you you barely know me. Um, and Cole says, my father, you know, had a saying when I was growing up, the only failure is giving up. And that phrase comes from Hannah, who's standing outside, right? And from mm-hmm. Elliot Jones. She's the one who told Matthew Cole that phrase mm-hmm. that he then passed on. So there's all of this, like, family legacy that is just – that's one line – and there's so much to unpack. And it is so tragic that this is like a family civil war. And it's also all for naught because Jones is wrong. <laughs> you know, like. Jones is beaten. Man. And she and, doesn't know it yet. Oh, God. Uh, and there's a great callback. I mean, you and, guys met. Oh, sorry. sorry. Go ahead. No, no I, I was, was going to say she's beaten. She doesn't know it. And she shoots her grandson. Oh, I know. I, 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 there's another great callback that I love that ties back to that um, that scene from Mother when Cassie threw herself off of um, 
the top of that mm-hmm. like she was at the top of the building and what she said was you can't have him yeah and that's what Cole says right you can't mm-hmm. have him he repeats that line and it's like the way they all exchange glances it's a huge moment for Cole and Ethan right like mm-hmm. Cole is going to this is very different this is very different from the decision Cole made in the last season finale in season two it's uh, he he is telling his found family and every no like you can't have my son um and the way cassie like it's just a huge moment for everyone and i i think it is probably both cassie and cole choosing their son is pivotal in ethan's journey right and what he chooses to do right like it's going there's a whole cycle we'll get to of people saving one another and how that ultimately is like right like but they, with the Jennifer of it all, but right, like someone chooses him. Like there's some there's something that's so powerfully vulnerable about someone choosing you out of love, right? Um, so he like he is chosen to be saved because of who, like who he is, like the meaning of his existence, as far as like he's the witness, and then. Mm. When uh, he and Eliza get together, he kind of chooses Eliza. He's attracted to Eliza and he like makes those moves for Eliza, which I mean, doesn't undercut their meaning. But here the vulnerable thing is that like for someone who's kept himself so lonely and so isolated and so cut off uh, in so many ways um, because he thinks he is like going to be this awful, wretched person. That's like his destiny. To have these people choose to save him because they love him. Like. And no matter what. Because he hasn't said he's going to make a different choice. Yeah. And right. Like they don't. Yeah. They don't know he's going to make a different choice. They just love him. And they see the value of him. You know. And like that's such a powerfully hard thing to accept. Even outside of these like. You know, outside of fiction, it's very hard to accept being chosen because someone sees, like, your inherent worth. You know what I mean? And so, like, I think that is very pivotal because they just love him and they're going to fight for him. And uh, it's just so good. This show is just so good. <laughs> ah, so good. Um, then you have uh, Jones and Hannah run into the house. We have great-grandmother, grandmother, son, <laughs> partner, and grandson slash great grandson all together for the only time in the entire series, and we didn't know it. <laughs> tragic. <laughs> it's so tragic. And Cassie is like, mother to mother, I am begging you. Mm-hmm. And oh, God, the like tragedy of like what these stakes force these people to do for Cassie to be turning her gun on Hannah, mm-hmm. who she saved. Mm-hmm. And for Jones, you know, it is it is significant, although the stakes are lower for Jones, right? She chooses to give Hannah up in that moment, although for her, in a reset, she gets Hannah back, right? right? For Cassie and Cole, they do not. <laughs> they lose everything. Um, also, she's gambling on the fact that, like, she didn't think, I don't think that Cassie would actually shoot Hannah. You know what I mean? Yeah, probably, although... I mean, I think it's dicey, but, like, for me, I think that, like, she's willing to risk Hannah, but also willing to make that gamble because, you know, like, in in that scene, it plays to me, like, Cassie might shoot Hannah, but she probably isn't going to shoot her to kill. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. Right. Yeah. Like, kind of like she shoots Deacon in masks, you know. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, that thing that's crazy is that, like, the way they balance, um, there is some epic stuff going down on this episode. You've got Titan splintering to the House of Cedar and Pine. Like, the two two of the three iconic places of the show. Mm -hmm. You've got a time-traveling city and the Army of the Twelve Monkeys coming at this house, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got that crazy scale and it's crazy sci-fi and all of that. And yet... The narrative is also firmly focused on these four people, five people together in this house um, and all of the emotion and betrayal and appealing to each other, right? Like, it's just really, it's just a really deft balance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's why the emotion, like, hits, right? Because you've got this intimate scene inside of a house, but you've also got crazy shit happening outside, right? right. Like, like, it's more um, than just a family drama. It's a drama about all of time. <laughs> Right. Like, with that, just, you know, the fate of the universe is just kind of hanging in the background. Which, I mean, it does feel like that sometimes with family drama. So. <laughs> right. Um, and then ha- and then Jones sh- decides to shoot mm-hmm. what she doesn't know is her great-grandson. And, like, Cassie's face breaks my heart. Like, yeah. oh, man. And then they come out and it's like, man, things are – not only do they find – not only do Jones do that and they d- – they have to assume that their son is dead. Um, but then you've got Tarek being like, no, I wanted you to find him. And you're just like epically fucked, right? Mm-hmm. It's like Luke Skywalker hanging with one hand mm-hmm. at the end of that thing, hoping somebody picks him up, right? It's just uh, like it's bad. All right. Talk to me about this dramatic as fuck moment at Titan. I mean, that's pretty much it, right? Dramatic as fuck moment at Titan. <laughs> you got the blue the, lights, you got the red lights, you got the creepy cult center. <laughs> the set, the music. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, the music from this point on through the end of the episode. And we don't have the soundtrack for season three. It is, it, it heightens everything. Mm-hmm. Like I think if you were listening to it like on an iP- like on your phone and you're just walking around getting a cup of coffee, it would feel like the most epic cup of coffee that you've ever gotten. Right? Like, this music is ridiculous. Um, But I love the way that it's set up that, like, you have them going through the doors and you turn and you see the pallid man. And it's never good when we see the pallid man, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you're like, fuck. And then he falls and you're like, it's Olivia. Yeah. Such a good reveal. Uh, right. that motherfucker though I know right it is you do have some weird moments where you're cheering for Olivia like you literally stuck it to your jerk brother I mean <laughs> she's such a good villain yeah exactly that you're kind of also cheering for her because like man a good villain is hard to find you know one where you're just like kind of like fuck yeah and also god no <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, And then we get the whole Olivia montage where we see all of these pieces of a puzzle going all the way back to the scene in season two Mm -hmm. where she was at her mother's grave. And now we see them in order. Um, I mean, and we think this is the big reveal, right? We still have another huge one (laughs) at the end of this episode. But they put all of the puzzles – into place as you're also watching what's happening at the facility with it, it it's clicking in Deacon's mind and you watch her kind mm-hmm. of take you watch what she was capable of the whole time. Yeah. And I nothing. like it because it is like you said it's like you're there the shows revealing what 
she like her linear linearity but at the same time it's also framing it as like deacon's putting all this shit together too mm-hmm. yeah um and uh, you know it's obviously a big character moment you know the deacon doesn't have a ton to do in this episode but like they're setting up his season four arc mm-hmm. when you know he goes in after her and she takes him down, and then she's like, everything you are is wasted on them, but not on me. You know what was funny, Cece? You know how I'm, like, watching it at the same time? You got, like, Al- like the Olivia line where she says that, and where you just said that was perfectly in sync. It <laughs> <laughs> was crazy. <laughs> the timing oh, was, like, actually perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um... So I love sort of, okay, you've got all of these level, like all season we have been hearing about someday the witness will return to Titan, right? Yeah. And there's so many things that are like uh, the way they play with that because Mm -hmm. you've got Olivia thinking that she is in the middle of a coup. And so, but she actually has returned, (laughs) right? When the pallid man is like, the witness has returned, you're like, but it really is the witness. <laughs> but you also have ti- you also have had this phrase that's been repeated to Ethan, and he will return to Titan, just not in a way that the faithful could have ever imagined, right? right. Um, talk to me about this Olivia and Jones moment when it hits Jones. I was a fool to trust you. I mean, kind of like we talked about earlier. Just you know, um, they 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 do such a good job of making this like, what's that word? The nadir of the show in a way Mm -hmm. where Jones has always seemed in a way unbeatable, like indestructible. She has a plan, you know, like our confidence is that she'll figure something out and that she's smarter than everyone else in the room. And, um, and we kind of know that that's not true. Like sometimes her, she aligns very, um, kind of very what's opportunistically for her she can align her morality with what she says the group needs to do especially like when it comes to like saving hannah or whatever um but we always kind of have the confidence in the show that she's gonna be you know like the the smartest and then mm-hmm. when olivia's like i beat you <laughs> like and not because you're not smart you're great i'm just better and that's i think for people who like put so much pride in their competency that is probably the worst thing you could ever hear. Right. Which is, no, you're smart and you're good and you're competent. You're just not smart enough. And it's just like, ooh, like the, like Olivia knows exactly how to like emotionally like just box at Joan's soft points. You know what I mean? She's just like hitting them all. Yeah. Like, yeah. You Emotional really- KO for, uh, <laughs> right (laughs) i mean but and also like it's so complicated you know Mm -hmm. she's like caressing her face you were the equal that made me better it's like you're welcome joe (laughs) (laughs) shout out to our number one jolivia shipper (laughs) (laughs) um you know and then she stabs her and it i honestly 
I mean, you, you know, you've got the back, you've got in the back of your mind, like they can't kill off Jones, but it looks really bad, mm-hmm. you know, like. I don't know. Like, uh, anytime you have an older character on a TV show, like, lots of other shows will choose to kill them off, right? Like, um, thank God this one doesn't treat older characters that way. But, like, um, and, you know, again, there are these, like, they let characters have these reactions, right? Like, Cole, like – like physically gets up at that, right? It's like distraught seeing mm-hmm. that happen to Jones. It doesn't matter how they've been on opposite sides, like in that moment, right? Like it's Jones, right? And for Cole, like, you know, eventually we'll get to like, I had two mothers. He's watching Jones get stabbed, right? And it's right. like, there's these little moments where it lets you know, like, you know, there may be a fracture, but that there's – connective tissue still there between these two characters, right? And then what I love, and it makes me think of the season four finale, every time Olivia is about to make a big dramatic speech at Titan, (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer, one way or another, is going to ruin it. (laughs) Jennifer is literally the fly in her ointment all the time. Ah, you're going to have, you know, Olivia be about to give the great villain speech and then have a what the fuck face because the lights start (laughs) flickering. It's like when she does the whole like thing in season four where she like draws the like Titan sigil and she's like, look, a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Or Olivia's giving her big speech to her henchmen and then uh, (laughs) Radio Titan comes on, right? Like I just, it's so... uh, it's so Jennifer, but it's also so kind of like self-aware, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, that takes us to if we have learned anything, anything yeah. at all, it is that you don't like pretend parent Jennifer and then screw her over. Oh no, ain't mm-hmm. having it. Yeah, talk talk to me about Jennifer saving the dying man. All right, beep. Go. <clears throat> Well, <laughs> beeps cracking her knuckles. <laughs> I just I love that they've had this connection like ever since minute one. And I know that technically like kind of all the primaries, you know, have some sort of connection to time and to each other. And you've got the one in season four who's or several, you know, in the Middle Ages who are connected to all that and they understand what's going on. But like the connection between these two people who in very different ways have felt so isolated their entire lives and to have like that special, you know, just like tie to each other is so amazing to me. And I love that they, you know, this is where they kind of do all the flashes to each other of like, you know, he's the dying man, I'm the dying man. Like, and I don't think really, you know, up to this point, she didn't know who it was. And I think that she's like, happy to see him i mean not happy that he's dying obviously but yeah you you have like this is the first time because this is before she even gets hannah like this is mother jennifer Mm -hmm. you know she starts taking care of him and like loving him and giving all of those things that she was never taught because her parents were shit but she like it's just deep within her that she has to not only, you know, like save his life, but she's going to nurse him and, you know, make him into the person that she knows he can be the person that she's seen this whole time. Whereas everybody else is like fighting over him being the witness. Like to her, he's just a person and he's a person that she has this like connection. Like I need another word for it, but this person she has a connection with, it's like beyond 
you know, getting to know someone, it's like they literally share like in some ways the same brain part, you know, part of which. And I just I I love them. If there was anything that I would have liked to see more on this show, it is this time period that we miss with the two of them. Yeah, I totally agree. Absolutely. Um, I mean, in everything you said, Beep, right, they were two primaries that we saw as children, right? Drawing, right? There's so many parallels between the two of them and feeling unloved in different ways, rejected in different ways. Um, you know, at least Ethan had Sebastian, right? Like in some, but, but he also had like horrific childhood, like, right? right? He was a kid in the tent. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there's two things that sort of on rewatch, um, that I find so, I mean, the music in this montage and when Jennifer finds them, it's so beautiful. Um, but two of the things I was thinking about, the first is this idea of save the one. Mm-hmm. And not in terms of a, the moral dilemma, um, which is always fun to dig into, but if you think about a loop – if you go back to, to 201 and 202 when Jennifer was on the rooftop and Cassie wanted, understandably, to take her out given the circumstances, it was Cole who chose Jennifer. He chose the one. He chose to take a risk despite the fact that that vial was hanging over New York City and could have started a plague. Um, and he chose t- to believe in Jennifer and be like, you can make a different choice, right? And that sets her on a whole other path. And you have this kind of beautiful, sometimes out, time out of order mentorship friendship between Ka- uh, Cole and Jennifer. Cassie and Cassie and Cole also have this like beautiful kind of friendship in different ways with Jennifer. Now Jennifer chooses to Jennifer saves their son. Their son then saves all of them. All of them save the world. And Athan's kernel of advice to Jones is what plants the seed to ultimately save Cole. And it is a cycle. You know, you have so many scenarios where it's, we have to kill this person, we'll save the world, all over and over and over and over again since the pilot. But it's characters choosing to save someone that kind of begets the actual positive cycle that gets us to the answer. Does that make sense? Yeah. And this is a beautiful moment of Jennifer is truly like the guardian of the children of the Jones family, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's the one that helps Cassie and Cole figure out how to save Hannah. She's the one who raises Hannah. She's the one that saves Hannah's grandson and nurses him back to health. And it's just like – I can, I don't know. I get really emotional about it. It's really yeah. beautiful. It's a be- It's just so beautiful thematically. I think like what you're saying totally hits the nail on the head. Where when they advance forward is when they choose each other, and when they like choose to honor their relationships with each other and the love that they have. Um, which is just just real beautiful, man. <laughs> it is. To say. And I get choked up when he. When um when he when he is splintered to the mausoleum and the camera pans up and you realize he's at the foot of Eliza's tomb. Yeah, I mean Jesus. And it's the <laughs> what a moment. Ah, oh, and you've got it's the you've got Jennifer who's going to physically save him, and in other ways you have Eliza who it was so key to like 
in some ways saving him mm-hmm. and having a hum- even though there was obviously an emotional cost because he couldn't always be with her but like you know that's the first time he really broke out of this cycle of detachment and right. and connected with her right mm-hmm. like and the message that she maybe he wasn't ready to hear it because she kept dying about you know you don't if then don't be that person right like mm-hmm. that and then you know Cassie's going to echo it but like just the symbolism of that moment the tomb of one woman and another woman saving him and just the fact that all these characters are women mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like oh it's so good um, well, it's also you see um when you talked earlier about him and his arc mirroring Cassie it's like when you're talking about you know saving the one versus saving the many that the problem with that comes like the the way that that gets completely you know overwhelming and completely blown out of proportion if you will is when you only have one mm, and eliza right. was his life and like that was it and cassie struggles with the same thing at the end not that she doesn't have other connections she does whereas he didn't but like they're like cole's not going to exist and that mm-hmm. means more to her than anything in the world and that's when this you know, when this idea of like, hmm, maybe there's another way starts to creep in. Yeah. And all that anger and that like, you know, I'm owed and whatever. Like Cassie's still just, she is pissed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, by the end. And it's not until you look past like that anger to what everyone, you know, to um, all the other things you have. And then also the the biggest thing, and I think that it's obviously demonstrated in the in the final episode is what the other person would want. Like, are you honoring them or are you just being selfish? Mm, mm-hmm. Right. Because Eliza asked him not to do it. Correct. The same way, the same way Cole asks Cassie not to do it. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, there's a lot of um, just the symbol of that. I was thinking about that pocket watch and the symbolism of a broken watch can cut two ways, right? Like it can, it can, it can cut the way that Cole is saying or Eliza is saying that don't worry about the past, don't worry about the future, all you have is right now. On the other hand, it's literally a broken timepiece <laughs> where time is not passing, um, which is sort of the dream of the Red Forest. Um, and I was thinking about how that symbol can kind of, you it know, does it, cut both ways, right? it can cut both ways. Because if we don't uh, have our past, who are we? And if we don't have a future, what are we working towards? Mm-hmm. You know, um, if we're trying to better ourselves and if there's no future, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, and what does it mean to not have a past? Like, there's one thing about, like, not letting your past define you, quote unquote, whatever that means. But there's also the fact that, like, things happen to you and you can't just mentally erase them because they're literally, like, part of your brain structure once they happen to you, you know? Right. Um, so, so yeah, it's just, it's just an interesting thing. Like what you said, it cuts both ways. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you look at the past and being like, um, sometimes that that's a bad thing, right? That you're mm-hmm. trying to redeem yourself, but it also can give you wisdom. It can enable right. you to make a different choice, you know? Like, mm-hmm. um, again, like I love the, the directing you've got, um, we'll see a little bit more and we'll get to it at the end of that just another glimpse of that time that Ethan and Jennifer spent together. Um, But at this point in the episode, you see the mask, you see Eliza's mask in the background, um, or one version of it, right? Because it's also a Titan. Um, But you have Ethan say, it's time. 
And it, you know, I think about earlier this season when Magdalena was talking about when you return to Titan. (laughs) And it's so delicious (laughs) that this is like, he's going to return to Titan, but it is going to fuck everything up. (laughs) It's It's so... It's like the whole thing about like, prophecies like yeah technically (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) fuck you magdalena yeah yeah, let's just like fuck you magdalena (laughs) right like oh this moment is one of my favorite in the whole series it's one of my favorite tv moments period it's just so earned when you're like fuck yeah Like, you can't, I can't help but just say fuck a lot of different times because it is so fucking awesome. Like, you have the music and the lights and you've got the, like, full-on iconic witness mask and the hood and the splinter suit. And it is just like, Ethan Cole is dramatic as fuck. What a dramatic, yeah, what a dramatic kid. Oh man, yeah. In the reset, in the reset, Ethan is definitely hanging out in the drama department because (laughs) oh my god, because he lifts his hands up and fucking open fires with machine guns, so Boondock Saint style too. I mean, when Cole says holy shit, it's like Cole is all of us. Like, holy shit. And I love anytime Olivia has a oh no face. It's so good. Mm -hmm. It's just, Uh, it's also like, it's so earned. It gives you that fist pumping moment, even though, even the first time I watched it, though, like, you still know that shit's going to go sideways. But like, it still gives you that fist pump moment because, again, the show realizes that wins are important, even in the context of loss, right? Mm-hmm. Like you still have to have something to fight for. And sometimes, yeah, maybe that just does mean killing a lot of, like, cult followers. <laughs> like, if that's what you got, that's what you got. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, I don't normally love violence, but I'm cheering Ethan on <laughs> in that moment. Saving mom and dad. Oh, yeah. And, and great-grandma. And great-grandma. <laughs> Right. Um, And then, you know, you have a line where he like takes off the mask and just like Jennifer in masks. This is the part when we run. Right. Like primaries commenting like they're narrating their own action movie. Uh, (laughs) um, But, you know, there's so much about this set. You know, we first saw it in Mother. I love that corridor of Titan. Oh, yeah. That just looks like it's going off into infinity. Ah, and it's just like, you know, it's the same one Cole's running down in the series four finale. It just visually is so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, that takes us to, I'm going to have to like take a minute because I don't know how they did it considering we met adult Ethan at the end of Masks, but these two scenes of between father and son and mother and son. Oh, fuck. <laughs> let's take Cole and Ethan first. It's just, like, how did they do it? Like, how did they... I mean, I think part of it's the writing, part of it's James Callis, right? Like, he's just so good. Um, And they go... And I think part of it, too, is that, you know, however intentional it was, you kind of do get developmental stages with their relationship across this um, episode, right? Like, you start with, like, petulant toddler, and then you get to sullen teenager. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get to, like, fully self-actualized adult with that year he gets to spend with uh, 
Jennifer. Um, I don't know, maybe reaching a bit, but it's just so, uh, I don't know. I think it's because they just, they just never underestimate their audience either, right? Like everything is complex. The audience knows it's complex. The writing treats it with that kind of gravity that it costs something for each of these characters to make the choices that they're making. And that's not lost. Like he gives his father the suit, you know, he's like, you chose me. I'm choosing you. Like, I mean, just damn, (laughs) damn son. I know. I mean, and you think also, uh, I mean, you think also like, um, this is of course headcanon, but he's also spent a year with Jennifer. Like he knows probably more now about his parents' story than he ever did, right? So um, you can speculate about what that is and you can write the fic about what that is. But like, you know, he spent a year with the friend and like comrade in arms with his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think the other reason why these two scenes are so emotional is, you know, when Todd Stashwick came on the podcast, he talked about like, Aaron Stanford's acting in Brothers about how it doesn't, there's emotion, but it also withholds a little bit. It doesn't, the dam doesn't break. And so it, it lets you as the audience, it lets the dam break. Do you know what I mean? Like, so there's emotion. And when you, when you have Ethan choosing, you know, like all of the primaries before him, this is where I'm meant to be. And then you have Cole. It's so simple. And mm-hmm. you can see the emotion. Like, I wish I could have known you. Yeah. So simple. And it's not sobbing. And it's not like a huge embrace. They just clasp hands, you know. It, it, it's it's holding back a little bit. And so, like, it lets you feel more, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because they're not quite letting it all out like it's all it's still a little bit like wrapped up but now when you rewatch it and Ethan says another life maybe maybe it is another life right like we have that coda or epilogue and coda and you have and maybe sons are fated to their fathers right like maybe this idea that they will have Ethan in another life because mm-hmm. Ramsey had Sam yeah and it makes so- you wonder too like what he and Jennifer have seen you know, in a way. True. Um, but it also, like, I wish I could have known you does just, it's just such a, it's a line that encapsulates, like, the feeling, that that entire feeling. And also the audience's feeling, like, what we were talking about, that we don't, we don't get, like, time with the family, Cole slash Jones. Like, this is all we get. And it is kind of, like, for the audience, too, like... At this point, aren't we all a little bit like, I wish I could have known you, Ethan? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Like, you're saying like that her- it's not it's not over the top, though, like, trying right. to acknowledge a relationship they don't have. It's, yeah. It's acknowledging the potential, but that they don't have a relationship, Right. Really. So it's not like, let's all cry and hug and do whatever, because it's like, no, we're, we're not there, you know? Like, we mm-hmm. would have been or could have been. That would be great. Um, <laughs> something that's... St- struck me in this episode which is just weird how your brain makes like funky connections um so you know Gaius you have and he says another life and that's like the show now that um oh my god where did that name go James Callis oh no Katie Sackoff 
Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's is in now. And I was just like, wait a minute. <laughs> Accidental Battlestar. Like, you don't even need to do this. Six degrees of Battlestar. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really, it's a beautiful moment. And, you know, the journey that it took for those two men individually to get to that moment of – you know, it, it, I guess it's reconciliation. It's more um, grief at sort of the loss of what they'll never have. But, but you know, now there's kind of a hopeful layer to it because when Ethan says another life, who knows how much he knows, mm-hmm. you know, about potentially what that could mean, um, which then takes us to uh, – Because he is also the one that tells Jones to uh, save Cole. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know, right? Like – it's it's faith the same way that he tells Cassie, see you soon. Mm-hmm. Oh, ah, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that takes us to the Cassie and Ethan scene. Um, and uh. he, you know, just 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 starts it out by giving his mother his. Beloved Eliza's pocket watch, you know, just the same token that Cassie had expressed to him a year before that she believed that nothing it's was been written. A year, oh, oh, yeah. no big deal. <laughs> I mean, like, think about like what this moment "nothing is written" means for each of them, right? Like mm-hmm. for Ethan, it expresses the journey he's been on for the last year. Mm-hmm. She believed in him that he could make a different choice. He became a person in his time with Jennifer that he chose to willingly come back to Titan and save his parents and give up his life, mm-hmm. which is actively choosing not to become the monster that he feared his whole life he would be, but like the opposite, right? Like right. a sacrificial savior. Um, but then when it means for Cassie – like going forward, because um, she's going to face her own choice that's very mm-hmm. similar to his. And she's going to have to give up the person she loves, but nothing is written because, you know, <laughs> Jones is literally going to rewrite the code and she's going to get him back. Mm-hmm. So it's just that simple phrase means so much just in terms of the journey Ethan's been on and the journey Cassie's going to go on. Um, and then, you know, Mother, please go, and then I'll see you soon. And then, I mean, I also want to point out that, like, I'm not sure I've ever seen a um, a mother-son battle scene before in a show. And I don't know why, even the first time I watched it, something struck me about that. Like, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds about gender and stuff, but, like, it, there is something that is kind of, like very Cassie and Ethan about this high emotionality, but they're also just like shooting the shit out of some bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's so in character for both of them. It's so in character for both of them because like, you know, when we meet Cassie, she's very um, like sophisticated and she's this doctor and, you know, she goes through a whole journey to like uncover and that add, I mean, that adds and develops so much like rage and anger and bitterness and grief, but also like uncovers her kind of like inherent ruthlessness and like mission drive. And I think with um, Ethan, like you see, he's introduced to us in this like way that he's just this lonely sophisticate, right? Like he has the perspective of time, but he's all alone and he's always a gentleman. And he's kind of refined and like 
you know, philosopher hermit on the hill kind of thing. And so that they they're kind of like last seen together is this like battle parent child thing where they're just connecting in this like high emotionality, you know, like there's so much um, there's affection, I feel like with Cole, but there's something a little bit else with Cassie and Ethan that's like a little bit more than affection to me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's like. I think where he and Cole might still have some shit, and that's why that line, I wish I could have known you works better. With Cassie and Ethan, it feels like they connect on a kind of a different level where they, they might already have that love, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it makes, I mean, it's also... Like, there's a tenderness. <sighs> that's the word. There's a tenderness yeah. there. Yeah. And and also, like, the, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Not only... I mean, I don't want to, like, I don't mean to downplay like the connection between fathers and their children right but like she carried him Mm -hmm. like right and she believed in him when no one did right even before cole did right and so it makes it makes emotional sense both at least for me as a mother watching it and also for the audience in terms of the story because cassie was the first one who knew he existed <laughs> again, right? After the reset, right? Like, you know, after Colin did anything, like she was the one who lived with his existence the longest and chose to believe in him and fight for him first. And so for them to be the last goodbye and for a son to tell a mother, see you soon. Mm-hmm. And all that means in the show. Right. But also the idea of maybe they will they will get he will get to exist and they will get to be mother or son and again in another lifetime like it is wow there's a lot there yeah. it reminds <laughs> you know? me of that brandy carlisle song um is it mother or evangeline where she, or the the first line is um oh what is it like something like say goodbye to being alone inside your mind you know it's a song about her daughter like when her daughter was born Mm. Um, and so I feel like there's kind of that element playing with like Cassie, like Cassie's always like, yeah, like you're saying, believed in him first, knew he existed, had that tether to him, um, in kind of a different way than, than Cole did. Like it it just felt like both were written appropriately. Absolutely. Right. Like she's talking about the first time she felt him kick. Uh, he wasn't real to Cole until Cole saw him. And, you know, we've talked before on the pod and I had like a really interesting conversation with my husband about how real that is, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it's not real for me as a man until the baby's there because I not, I didn't physically go through it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's just a lot of um, emotional truth to to both of those scenes that are really carefully calibrated, not only to like real world things and real world feelings, but also very much sort of the character journeys on the show. Like they just nailed it. Um, and it could have lesser shows, it could have been over the top and it could have been, it could have been, it could have played out a lot of different ways. You know, it's mm-hmm. like restrained and carefully calibrated. Yeah. Um, I do love if you sat back and felt extremely frustrated at Cassie's lack of agency and the horrors of her like Handmaid's Tale prison in the season premiere. Then getting to set off a paradox with two watches like mm-hmm. Cole did in the pilot and in Tarek's face is awesome. <laughs> she gets to escape Titan on her own, right? Like Cole's waiting for the other side. It's it's great. 
Um, if you guys don't have anything else about that, I wanted to go to, we've got a lot of different sort of um, closing the loop on the season three story and setting up the uh, the beginning of the end. Um, and the first is Olivia and Ethan. Um, and you've got Olivia, like, sitting on her throne, like, again, I'm gonna just, like, the Emperor in Star Wars. <laughs> she's sitting in a museum, and it's, like, she's sitting in a museum dedicated to this man that she worshipped and hated, and she just thought she succeeded in overthrowing, and she's about to find out it was it was her all along. Do you guys have any thoughts before we dig in on this scene? I mean, I feel like the one thing that just came to my head with Olivia is, like, if we're talking about how psychological the show can get sometimes, is the fact that, like, she worshipped this person, she hated them, and it turned out to be her. And I think that does speak to a lot of, like, you know, cycles of, like, self-hate, you know, like how, like, just, like, just this, like... I don't know. I don't quite have my thoughts together yet. But as you were saying that, I was like, yeah, like Olivia actually hates herself. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's know? such the simplicity too. I mean, obviously it's totally amplified, but it's the simplicity that everybody understands of being your own worst enemy. I mean, Absolutely. Holy crap. Like, yes. I will torch things before I face my own inner trauma or inner demons or whatever you want to do it. It's like Olivia's like, no, literally I will burn the world down. <laughs> Just so, like, you know, because I I, I can't, you know. Just to avoid dealing with my shit. Just to avoid dealing with my shit. I'll literally deconstruct time. (laughs) I mean, relatable, though, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. (laughs) I mean, so there's, like, I mean, obviously this moment is, like, has so much weight and gravity to it and it's about to be a huge reveal you still have james callis being like love what you've done with the place i just laugh out loud <laughs> john's uh, family tradition little shit yep um but i also, love the- what freedom what freedom this man has just experienced you know oh, what i mean yeah. he made a choice it's over he knows he's about to die and he's, and he's just kind of like, you know yeah. what, I'm just, I'm going out, like, it is going to be, not a blaze, but in a way, you know, he's just like, <laughs> dude, <laughs> I know what's about to happen, like, I'm going to have my fun. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, you have, oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was just like, I just love how, like, both, the primaries are just always, like, fucking with Olivia. <laughs> <laughs> they are. <laughs> Yeah, like we're gonna get uh, Alpha Primary in season four. Is like, yeah, dude, I'm about to light myself on fire. <laughs> I, I but- covered myself in oil, bitch. <laughs> like, you like we're primaries, assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. So you have um you have Eliza's mask in the background to the scene. Um you get um we're gonna get as sort of the culmination of this scene, it's going to repeat that face-off that we saw with um, when Olivia drank the red tea of the two of them facing one another. But this time, instead of the grandfather clock in the background, it's the witness mask in the background. Mm-hmm. And we're about to get the answer to the big question. Um, I love the callback to Eliza when um, Olivia asks him why the mask. And he says, if you're going to promise death, better look the part. <laughs> Which is yeah. what Eliza said in Thief. But if you think about it. Again, though, dramatic ho. Like, <laughs> just, such flair. Um, but Olivia 
There's now different reasons that we know why the witness wore a mask. Number one, because she had to hide from herself who she was and from everyone in order for the cycle um, to, uh, you know, uh, stay intact. But also because it's part of the machinery, I think, right, for her to be able to tap into the time stream um, with all of the, like, tubes and things for her to be able to do it. So um, I thought that was kind of an interesting line because there's – there's more to unpack as to why season four, Olivia chooses a mask. Um, and when he tells her the sad, lonely demon was never me. Um, and, you know, the moment with like, but I, first of all, the acting mm-hmm. in this scene, man, they both are so good because the shock and like realization and denial that plays out over Allison Down's face and the way James Callis is sort of like it's there's like this wisdom right mm-hmm. like um and being very brave in the face of like this is the like minutes of his death um but you know surely you've realized by now and i feel like it's to her as much as it's to the audience <laughs> Right. And it's like, oh, wait, but I had it. Um, and she's like, but I haven't done those things. And not yet. You will. I prayed to you. Yes, I witnessed as mm-hmm. in the verb, but I am not the witness. And then you have this unbelievable line. Life isn't measured by clocks. And though you have an army at your back and you are alone, that is why you will lose. Mm-hmm. Imagine thinking that human connection is important. What? That's crazy. I know. I know. I mean, and the thing is, it's also... It literally is, though, the thing that saves Athan and makes him the ability to transform from who was operating as a sad, lonely demon is connection and love. Absolutely. And it's true of everybody. It's true in life. It's true in stories. But there are so many creators, you know, who want to downplay that. And it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. It's And it's just like the power in this is that... Like you were saying, Cece, at the beginning of the top of the episode, they're presented as mirror images. But the thing about mirrors are they're reflections. They're not who you are. And so, like, their parallel journey is that, and the tragedy of Olivia is that she is ultimately alone. And and chooses to be. And chooses. And yes, so she right. is alone. But then she has, we see through this season, that Jones offers her an authentic hand in connection. And she ultimately chooses not to accept it. Whereas Athan, he has, I mean, they, he has some connections with Sebastian. He rebuffs that connection, but then eventually, ultimately, like, takes the leap that someone else, his parents and Jennifer, love him. You know, like, that is a leap of faith for people who are traumatized, especially, mm-hmm. to... To accept that what that love is, is real. And that begin, and it's one of those things where it's like, you have to get to a certain point of healing to be able to take that step. But that step is also critical in advancing to healing, right? And so that's what they show, though, is that he chooses, he gets to a point where he, the critical mass is reached, he chooses to have the faith that the love and the care that Jennifer, Cassie, and Cole have for him is authentic. And in doing so, is able to change his life. You know what I mean? Even though, like, yes, there's all this nature-nurture stuff going on as well. But, like, that is, like, the mirror parallel journey of these two reflections of each other, right? Right. And that's – I mean, that that is a – 
I mean, obviously, like, we're not – but, but like, as a viewer, that line hits me as, like, one of the thesis statements of the show, that mm-hmm. it's not nihilistic, that making those choices, choosing other people, those selfless acts, and choosing human connection, that it ultimately matters. Right. And they will hurt you. People will hurt you. But choosing them, like, choosing and having that faith is is the work. It is important. It, it matters. Yeah. I yeah. love that he specifically refers to himself slash her as the sad, lonely demon, mm-hmm. because that wording is such a red herring yeah. for all of season four. Because mm-hmm. like five seconds later, you know, they're like, the serpent and the demon. And you're like, well, we already know who the demon is. Right. No, nope. we don't. No. Nope. <laughs> nope. oh, it's back yes. to the magic tricks, right? Yeah, <laughs> man. You give us one truth, and now we're we're freaking watching the the cups and not the hands again um (laughs) so all right so that obviously like i mean again it is it it is a moment that is both hopeful and is also like you know ethan dies and it i don't know how they did it but man it hits you in the gut even as he's giving you i think the audience the words of hope right before his death right like there's a way to beat her and Mm. it's only going to be together um not if we're alone and this has been a whole season three has been a whole journey of our team being torn apart right and this these next scenes are kind of like quickly elegantly but kind of like stitching it back together so Mm -hmm. first one we've got london 2018 um i think it has a lot of emotional weight that they chose to show us this flashback after ethan is dead Mm mm-hmm and we see Jennifer and Ethan living together. Um, they're they're kind of reminding. I, I love that this is so, sort of setting up that this is the beginning of the end. And we see Cassie on TV, and we're reminded of the plague again. You know, it's been a long time <laughs> since we've thought about the plague. Drip drop. Breadcrumb. <laughs> oh, Breadcrumb. <laughs> Man. Um, and, you know, you have him saying, like, I must return to Titan. And so we're reoriented as to, like, when this is. And then you have Ethan now setting up Jennifer as you'll need them and they'll need you. Um, you're not like me. You are better. And uh, now I can't help but think of what Cole says to Jennifer at the end that you were the best of us, right? Mm-hmm. But she is both in her personal like her character but also as a primary like she's all of the primaries have had these images and pieces of this code floating around in their heads right but it's jennifer who's going to be the one who figures it out Mm -hmm. of all of the primaries right she's like the super primary who's going to figure this out and then it leaves us with that image of the code in the circle all those little pieces of the code make up the the demon, the monkey, which has been the image of the show since the very first episode, but then this serpent. And they've been seeding the serpent clues like throughout season three. But like now that you know that it's the code to erase coal, <laughs> and then that the serpents there are like, oh, it's all there, right? Um, and then obviously this is cutting back and forth. So sort of the moment of um it's not quite reconciliation yet, but it is an olive branch of stitching our team back together. You have the really like it, um, such a definitive symbol of loss, like the burning of the house of cedar and pine. Mm-hmm. 
and Cole and Cassie, like that, what that, what that symbolizes to them that they've just lost their son. Um, and then you've got Hannah and Deacon appear and, you know, Cole is holding Jones, right? Like, no matter what happened, all of that washes away. Jones is wounded. These people mean something to one another. And the sort of wordless moment of Deacon handing Cassie the, like, tether injection, there's such a sort of, like, unspoken grace in that mm-hmm. that almost words would have ruined it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, a lot of mercy in that moment. Yeah, like – <sighs> um, and that they're all going home, like the the home that Cassie and Cole had held on to is collapsing in front of them, and they are all now going home to the facility. You know, obviously except for Jennifer. Um, and then Cassie, the, you know, the camera showing Cassie and Cole holding hands. You know, no matter what has happened and all that they've lost, Cassie and Cole are on the same page with one another. Like mm-hmm. as we head into the end, um, Olivia sort of. <laughs> I know that she's the villain, but I fist pump at her. The witness has returned. She has. It's like such a great feminist moment, even though I know we're not supposed to be rooting for her. Do you guys feel that way I mean, <laughs> when you I watch it? She's just a great villain. And um, yeah, I think like I think it would be one thing I was thinking, I'm going to take it one direction, circle back, is that um, – like, when we've been talking, we've definitely been talking, like, kind of a cisgender way about, like, motherhood and and stuff like that. And I think that there's a real, like... And, of course, that's what the show presents. And that's, like, it's also very real. These, like, certain archetypes and stereotypes of motherhood and how uh, 12 Monkeys interacts with, like, motherhood and fatherhood in that way. Um, so that's obviously, like, very real and worth talking about. But there also really is a, like a queerness to the show whether they intended it or not and i do think that like olivia olivia's journey is definitely a part of that so is like jennifer's motherhood journey i you know like motherhood slash parenthood journey um because like you were saying tina like she is obviously the mother right Mm -hmm. um and so i think that like yeah it's a moment that's like and uh, yeah, it is, it is like there is, when I say that there's this queering the narrative that can happen, I also am obviously thinking of like, I don't mean in the way that like, sometimes gay people are like villains, right? I'm speaking also, just so you know, as a, just so the audience knows as a queer person. Um, But like, I do think that there is this like, I don't quite know where I'm going, but this moment when she does, when, when the witness has returned, she has like, there's just this like, this power, this subversive transgressive power to it. And I kind of haven't completely unpacked it, but like, I know what you mean. It's like this like feminist, like kind of complex, complex thing. Like you're rooting for her yet. She wants to end time, but she also wants to be free of like all of these constraints that have been put on her, her whole life. Right. Like she was basically bred to be an ultimate fighter, to be an ultimate sort of like, specimen of a time like of of a person right with all of these capabilities yet she grew up in a box and she was told to worship this man and like Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. and these men who like created her and this like woman who like um did their bidding and how she was raised like it is this like very like complicated feminist kind of queer like like idea to like what is happening here and I I don't I I don't know how to unpack all that, especially without like 
like going way out of the scope of this episode, but like it's complex. And yeah, I am rooting for her. I'm like, yeah, you are. Like, you're the fucking witness, Olivia. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) because, bitch. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, because there's there have been so many images of, and I know this is going to sound strange because Olivia has also been threatening and scary, right? But right. you've also had these moments of a girl being being put in a box um, right. by by a father figure that is a, a like a disembodied voice from uh, from above, which there's a. There's a lot of symbolism and meaning that you can unpack in that. Or her brother, right. like, physically threat. Like, remember when he grabbed her face in season two? Yeah, like, she's right? always been- Subjugating her? Yeah. Subjugated by men. Right. And and so she is born for a purpose, but created. both- like, created, created for a purpose. Yeah. Yes, created for a purpose, like, yeah, bred for this purpose, right? Like, but sh- both in- Carrying out a coup and literally overthrowing a patriarchy, right? Like a male-led like religion, right? Mm-hmm. That she's claiming for herself. But then she finds out it was her all along. So then you flip it on its head that it's this crazy like self-actualization moment. Even though as the audience, you don't you don't want her to win mm-hmm. that. And, and just like, you know, there's also just really more basic things. Like, we're not used to watching women get to carry that kind of weight or play that role in a story. Right. And they had us all along thinking, despite all of the other women that are important in the story in all kinds of different ways, thinking that it was a man, the audience has been under that impression for three seasons as well. Right. So, you know, it's just sort of like, there's so much in that moment. It's um, really, it's a really, you could do a whole episode deconstructing and talking about Olivia. Because I think that like, I think if you put it on paper to me that like the person with the like, who presents as like a cis woman who has queer undertones becomes the villain. Like on paper, you're like, okay. <laughs> but when you watch it play out, it's so compelling right like it's it's so nuanced and complex um that the moment like you're saying like we just talked about how she chooses to live in her trauma and yet at the next scene you're like yes bitch like (laughs) yeah (laughs) like there's something kind of like because there's agency in it yeah absolutely because she's been the forgotten one right the cast aside one the supplicant the like she gave her life for this purpose and then and then like was ca- like yeah like cast aside but then to find out she is actually the witness like that is just such a moment <laughs> <laughs> well, right. if you can if you can look at it from the standpoint like if you can back up enough from the narrative and from the team you know that we want to support and just look at it from the the point of view of you know everyone's the hero of their own story yeah for sure then like what kind of ending is this for what she's endured you know yeah yeah it's triumphant um and it also it also serves the purpose of it really sets the stakes like because 
She found out that she is the witness. She is promising the faithful, yeah, I am going to bring about the Red Forest. And right now, we're going to go, we're going to go hunt down our enemies where they are, right? Like, we're going to go immediately to the season four premiere and fucking Titan is coming for them. And Olivia may not have known she was the witness and this may have been a coup, but she still firmly has, like, she may have doubted who the witness was, but she does not doubt the cause. Mm -hmm. So the stakes are still there. The universe still hangs in the balance and she is coming for them yeah. and you're like fuck <laughs> right like it really sets the stakes um yeah, like once she finds her identity she's like all right <laughs> like all systems go <laughs> yeah and she knows the 12 monkeys and their mission better than olivia no one she's clear-eyed clear eyes full hearts can't lose <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, Coach Taylor would not approve. No, but yeah, Tammy, Tammy would probably be the only person in a fictional universe who could like talk Olivia off of this. <laughs> like, I right? Believe it, 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 she's could. missing the full hearts, and that's why she does lose. That's true. That's true. Tammy Taylor would need like three bottles of white wine to do it. But <laughs> I believe she could do it. You know, uh, my husband and I, whenever we pull, pour a really full glass of wine, we call it the Tammy Taylor pour. Yes. <laughs> It is a mom at a long day pour. <laughs> the only thing that can help me is Chardonnay, and I don't care what that seems like. <laughs> oh, man. Um, all right. So then the final scene. And I I mean, I, I, I guess I somewhere in the back of my mind realized that that voiceover with the beginning of the – the serpent and the demon riddle was was Matthew Cole's voice at the beginning of the episode. But the bookend and the final image that we're left with is Matthew Cole, who we haven't seen since season one, mm-hmm. and little Cole. So we've seen this actor as little Ethan drawing the dying man, and then we're reminded of Cole. And uh, um, there's something that is so uh, – you've got the mystery, right? So you're setting up, it's reminding you the mystery of Cole's mother, mm-hmm. which was planted all the way back in season one in Paradox. And the miss, what does this riddle mean? Um, how does one stop what never began? Mm-hmm. And, and, and is this scene of domestic happiness of Cole's like kind of fleeting childhood that he had with his father before the apocalypse. And yet in this moment, what that riddle means from Hannah that none of them know is erasing that little boy's existence. Mm -hmm. Ah, Like there's all these layers of tragedy to it, even though it's this kind of beautiful scene of a father reading a bedtime story to his son, but he's going to lose that father very soon. Um, and it's about that little, that little boy is the demon that has to be erased. Like, mm-hmm. man, um, there's also some really great, like he's reading to him when he says the flying monkeys, right? It's the flying monkeys from the Wizard of Oz. Um, Bedtime for Bonzo is from a Ronald Reagan chimpanzee TV show, mm-hmm. right? Bedtime for Bonzo is at least a primate. Um, so there's lots of like really great kind of pop culture monkey references in there. Mm-hmm. But man, it is a great, it is a great setup to head into season four, but it is also there's oh something my God. Sorry. tragic. I, yeah. I just noticed that there's a in the frame when they're starting to zoom in on Matthew and uh Cole. 
there's like a black hat hanging above Matthew that looks a lot like the bowler <gasps> the hats that um pallid man wears. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, it it's is like a, a cowboy hat, but I mean, the the image is very striking. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good catch. Yeah. It's just this like there's it is a great brain teaser because you're left being like. Oh my God, what does that mean? Right. You know, like, I mean, it's setting up, you've answered so many questions, but, and you've set the stakes, but now we realize there's mysteries that we still have, have to figure out. Um, but there's just this kind of sinister and tragic, the layers to that scene, which is one that is actually like on the surface so beautiful and basic of like a father reading a bedtime story to his son. Well, we realize that the show has to end and we don't know how that's going to happen yet. And so there is so much more, but you know, like the feeling of this episode is so epic and ties up so much and yes, leaves us with mysteries. But as you're watching it, you have this feeling of completion until you realize that like, oh wait, there's still one more season. Like there's still, yeah, there's still mystery. Yeah. And we're not going to get the answer who's Cole's mother or what that riddle means until one minute more. (laughs) Like, it's the penultimate. If you count that finale as a two-parter, it's the penultimate episode. We're going to wait a whole other season to get the answer to that. Um, And again, at least for me, both of those are total surprises and yet totally make sense. I mean, I I still remember the feeling of watching One Minute More, and I felt like I – had a like a crochet hook in my soul almost just like dragging me like through this like experience of like holy shit Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh man i love a crochet hook through my soul that's vivid megan that's vivid (laughs) i have a a quick question for you guys sure yeah because there was a big thing that came up at the end of season three um and it seemed to me like an inordinate amount of people got from this that their huge theory was that Jennifer was Cole's mom. Yeah. Did you guys I get that. that sense at all? Or or did you have any conjecture at this point about who it was or how that might come into play? I think it crossed my I think it crossed uh for Miss my husband, I think it crossed our minds, but I don't know. They'd also had Jennifer kiss him. So yeah, it crossed I mean, my mind, but I was kind of like, no, I, it didn't feel right. But I was also like, I guess that might be a new character we see. And then I did think it was the other girl. Uh, I also thought it was Olivia. Emma. I, I went, I, I went it on was a, Olivia. Yeah, I thought it was. Olivia. I went on a whole journey. I thought it was Olivia, and then I thought it was Emma. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on a whole journey about. Did not it. think it was Hannah ever. Not ever. Not ever. It's the same way that, uh, you know, uh, when Terry Metalis and Sean Treader were on last episode and they were like, how do people not know that the dying man was Ethan? I was completely surprised. I had no idea um, it was Ethan. <laughs> no. I had no idea it was Ethan. I had no idea Olivia was a witness. Like, I'm just not that smart in I figuring these plot twists out. Totally, like, beyond the hundred, I never did a lot of meta work to figure out where a show was going. I'd rather experience it as it unfolded, especially if I respected what I thought they were trying to do. Um, so, so yeah, I never, but I could, I, yeah, I didn't really have an idea that the dying man would, would have been Ethan, especially from the beginning, like before you know what Ethan looks like really as an adult. Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out Game of Thrones and, you know, that led nowhere good or rewarding. <laughs> well, so. did the hundred, so. <laughs> Man, we'll always have 12 monkeys. We'll always have 12 monkeys. <laughs> 
Um, I can't. So we are now at the beginning of the end. I can't believe we're done with season three. We've got one season left. Um, Megan, I'm so glad you were here to break this one down for us. Um, I'm glad I kn- to be here. Or what two have been here. <laughs> um, I know you've always loved the Ethan story. I so. I know. <laughs> so Megan, thank you so much. You're welcome. And I love you being will on here. Yay! And um we'll be back soon with Professor Aaron to get get just keep running right into Olivia's common forum. So we're gonna mm-hmm. pick up running. Um if you guys have anything else, then we'll see you soon. <laughs>